Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. Here to talk about your DC Comics for the week of August 23rd, 2022. Pretty solid week. Uh, we got the Return of Human Target, not, not the regular series. That's coming next month, I believe. But we get uh, a story that ties into it. We get more of the, the last story arc of this uh, Superman as a Gladiator on War World. And uh, we get another installment of Batman Fortress, which was pretty solid. Uh, and plus, we get uh, a comic that I, but it showed up in the press preview, and I didn't. I don't even remember hearing about it. This uh, Olympus Reborn, Rebirth, Olympus Rebirth, Rebirth, yeah, uh, yeah, that ties into Wonder Woman. So, yeah, there's some solid books this week. What do you think, Rocky? I, I I think I think it's a solid uh, half and half for me. I there's definitely some books here that I. I'm just just wasn't really a fan of, um, but there were some that I that I quite enjoyed. So and and to be quite honest, I think I told you before I'm, I'm I've been batting consistently fifty to sixty percent of DC titles I've been enjoying, and you know it's it you know quite frankly I, I'm not that's not me being harsh on DC. The reality is is on it's probably unrealistic to expect that I'm going to enjoy all titles because they're not all necessarily for my sensibilities, but. I'm still enjoying DC, and it's. Uh, I think it's you know it's a, still a good time to collect DC. Uh, I think they're probably maybe at you know the continuity is a little wonky, but there's still some books here to enjoy. And, and quite frankly, you and I we were talking earlier. You and I sort of take the bullets for a lot of people that are maybe are deciding which comic books maybe they're going to pick up or not because you can't expect that every one of these comics is going to be for everybody, but. Hopefully, uh, you know, we'll give them some idea what these comic books are like. That, that's how come I try to tame my words if I'm not enjoying a comic. I, <laughs> I gotta, I gotta remember that just because I don't like it, maybe somebody else will. So I, I, I try to keep that in mind. But every now and then, my, my dislike might ooze out of my uh, system in the form of a rant. But it, you know, it is what it is. <laughs> yeah, I've been, I've been trying to take a little bit of a different perspective on things. Uh, Myself, you know, I generally try to stay positive. I think I'm pretty good at that. But yeah, there are times where I get a little ranty and I just got to remember, well, you know, I'm not the target audience for this. And there's probably somebody out there who it's their their favorite comic. So, uh, so I guess that's a good segue into Action Comics number 1046, War World Revolution Part 4, to be concluded, it says, in Superman War World Apocalypse. Um and then next month in Action Comics, we get Kal-El Returns Part 1. So there's only one part of this War World story left. Uh, part of me thinks, thank God. Um, but at the same time, I feel like the creative team has saved their best for last. So written by Philip Kennedy Johnson. The art in this particular issue is by Fico Osio. Colors by Lee Luffridge. Letters by Dave Sharp. So let me talk about the art first of all. Uh, because the art in this book – I. I I'm going to say that the art has been inconsistent during Philip Kennedy Johnson's run. Uh, and I don't actually mean that as a negative this time because a lot of times I'll say, oh, so-and-so, his art has been inconsistent. So I'm not naming a particular artist and saying it's inconsistent. I'm saying overall there's been an inconsistency of style because we've had so many different artists working on this uh, Superman War World story, you know, started out with Daniel Samper, who's an incredible artist. We've had, um, uh, remind me who, uh, he mostly does covers, Frederico, uh, 
I can't remember his last Federico, name. Federico, uh, oh. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's Sorry, man, I'm drawing a blank. Yeah, it's going to bug the heck out of me. But anyway, he mostly is known for doing uh, a lot of cover work. We got some interior work from him that was really fantastic. And now we have uh, Fico Osio, whose uh, art I think we first saw on the uh, the Mr. Miracle Source of Freedom story that uh, that was Shiloh, the Shiloh Norman version of um, – of Mr. Miracle, and we were blown away by it. He goes from doing Mr. Miracle to doing action comics in pretty short order. That you know, that's that's no mean feat, and I definitely you know, congratulations are in order. And his art is is as good here as it was on Mr. Miracle. We were a big fan of it there. This particular issue has tons of action, um, and I, I really enjoyed it. And like I said, um, I haven't necessarily been enjoying this Superman uh, action comics run. I've talked a lot about it not feeling like a Superman story for me. Uh, part of that is the kind of the scope and the way that uh, Philip Kennedy Johnson set it up, I think. Uh, in the beginning, you know, it was Superman, plus he put together this team, so we maybe didn't get as much Superman on the panel or on the page as I would have liked. And then sort of in the middle uh, parts of the story – it's it's we've definitely got a lot less Superman. We've had issues that have focused on uh, kind of the, these refugees, the theologians. We've had issues that have focused on Midnighter. So I haven't felt like we've gotten a lot of of Superman. And then even when we have, it hasn't felt a lot like Superman because he didn't have his powers. Uh, this issue, despite the fact he doesn't have his powers, uh, or at least not at the beginning, it still feels very Superman centric, very action oriented. Superman, we, we get a lot of him. It feels like a Superman story. I think that's why I enjoyed this issue so much. We get a lot of who he is and, you know, not um, – a lot of times in this story, the way Johnson has set it up, we're getting a sense of who Superman is by other people's reaction to him. Like whether it's the theologians talking about him, whether it's the villains talking about Superman, his selflessness, his willingness to sacrifice – his um, role as this symbol of hope or an inspirational figure. It's all contextually through the way other people see them. We get to see it for ourselves in this issue. So again, I think that's another part of the reason I enjoyed this issue so much because I'm getting Superman. I know Superman is a symbol of hope. I know he's an inspiration. I know he's a hero. I know he sacrifices. I like to see it for myself. Uh, and we definitely see it in this issue very overtly, really. Um, and we put that together with Fika Osio's art and some great color work by Lee Luffridge as well. Uh, I just, I really, really enjoyed this issue. And for the first time um, that I can remember, because uh, I've talked before about the, how kind of ridiculous I think this gladiatorial um, costume is of Superman. I, I haven't liked it. Um, for the first time ever, I, I enjoyed seeing it on the page. The, the full page splash where Superman is is uh, walking in the door has been uh, open for him to the, I, I guess, organs. Um, he's walking layer, into the if you will. Yeah, he's walking into the fire of Olgrim and, and to face the yeah. fires of Olgrim to. Yeah. It's just a test yeah. of. Yeah. Cape is, you know, way longer than his cape has any, <laughs> any right to be. It's, it's like almost a spawn. spawn. Cape. <laughs> yeah. It's almost spawn. Like, but, you know, and he does still have the gray hair, but it's just, it's a, just a really cool image. So again, a lot of credit to the art. Um, I just, I really enjoyed this issue. 
this issue does show me that Philip Kennedy Johnson, and I haven't had any doubts about this, but it does show how much Philip Kennedy Johnson understands who Superman is. And maybe he's sort of gotten to the end of the story in a roundabout way or not the way that I, you know, might've necessarily, uh, you know, wanted it to be. I keep going back to it feeling a little derivative. I've talked at length about Superman and exile storyline that Roger Stern did back in the day and how much I love that. But here's the thing, right? Like I read that when I was like 14, 15 years old, I think somewhere around there, 1987, 88, when it came out. Maybe I was a little younger, 12 or 13. Um, but I love that story. And it part of, part of why I love that story is the nostalgia of the time that I read it, right? There's probably some 12 or 13 year old out there, 14 year old that's reading this war world story. And 20 years from now, they're going to look back on this and this is going to be their Superman story that they look back on fondly. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, it goes to show, like we were talking about before, not every story is for, you know, every person. And this is a well constructed comic. By no means does any of my, you know, criticism of it, it it's all, part, you know, just my personal taste. So if this is a bad story, it, you know, even though the art style has varied greatly, the art has been quality and uh, it's, it's pretty interesting. And we still have the, the kind of theologian um, part of the story that's going on as well in terms of um, the, the alien that's still on Earth, right? And how how is she going to be? Uh, rescued or how, how is her story going to, going to play out? Uh, Cause we do have a backup here that, uh, that talks about that and how Theola may survive is, you know, yet, yet to be seen, but that hasn't been forgotten either. So we may have some other than the obvious consequence. We, we may have some consequences of maybe a new member of the Superman family coming out of the story. So anyway, what did you think of this Rocky? Well, you know, it's 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 interesting because I know that you from the beginning has stated that this did, never felt like a Superman story for you. And I'm wondering, I, I have a little bit of a theory building on your comments and that the art of Federico Ricci, I think it's Federico, Federico, Federico Ricci is his art. Isn't that his, I think that's the uh, Yeah. And, that. But he, he has more of a painted style and I didn't mind yes. it, but I have to tell you that I actually, I visually enjoy this issue more than I have any other issue of the series so far. And I think it's because of it's a more traditional comic book style. It, it actually, it's brighter. I like the, uh, I, I enjoy it more than the subdued painted style of Federico Ricci. Uh, I actually enjoy it more, and that's just just that's just taste. That's that's not taking anything away from the narrative so far. The story's been really good. Kudos to Philip Kennedy, uh, Kennedy Philip Kennedy Johnson, but the art here is fantastic. Uh, uh, you know, uh, Resale here did did uh, a really an amazing job, and I, I love what it says about Superman in this particular chapter. Superman is going. He faces the fires of Algrim. He passes a test. And he's the only one to have ever gotten to that point uh, when he's going along, sort of like almost like he's going through uh, uh, a series of tests and and he passes all the tests with flying colors. He's the first one to make it there without sort of having all these chains and all this record of deaths. He's the only one who's never killed anyone. I mean, normally this is on, on War World, so you're not going to make it this far unless you've got all these heavy chains of all these people you've killed. Superman has made it as far as he has, and he's managed to maintain his moral compass. And so we've gotten through this part of the story with all this death, pain, and suffering of all the people on War World, the Phaeologians, and all the other races on War World. And Superman has managed not only to maintain his moral center, but inspires others to maintain theirs. And this is in the face of a, a great deal of violence. There's been children that have been violently attacked. There's been uh, there's been many people that are 
facing the wrath of Mongol here. And in, and in fact, the cliffhanger in this issue is Mongol threatening the lives of uh, two Phaelosian uh, uh, teenagers uh, to basically get, obtained from Superman that, that the power of Olgrim that Superman uh, successfully obtains at the end of this issue after passing these tests. And, you know, it's actually great because it's like the, the, the test that Superman has to pass. It's, you know, uh, I wouldn't have gotten him right, but it shows Superman's intelligence. It shows his strength. It shows his perseverance. And like I say, the visuals are fantastic. I agree with you that the this is the best that Superman's cost Superman's new crazy warlord outfit with that with that Superman that S symbol on his chest. Uh, it actually looks it looks better in this particular style of art, in my opinion, and I think it actually it feels more. Uh, I actually wish now that every issue of Action Comics was drawn by Fico Rizzo, but Osio Fico Osio, and uh, uh, yeah, and that's and. And the painted style was pretty cool, but uh, I enjoyed this. People are going to, I think, are going to really enjoy this issue, especially going into the final, uh, the final issue. The uh, this is the penultimate issue, and Krillix here, uh, the the person that he's fighting alongside, ends up getting injured. He risks his life to save him. He risks his own life. He even tries to save the life of one of the one of the holographic sort of like constructs uh, of the of the representative of the fires of Algrim. And so he Superman is even respecting, arguably non-life uh, but any life that shows some sign of intelligence superman respects so this is really pkj in top form here and he understands superman so it, yeah this is a this was definitely one of the more highlights of the week for me one of the better ones this week so for sure yeah ricardo federici so we had the, we had it backwards <laughs> yeah we, we, we yeah we kind of butchered that i think we're calling him federico ricci yeah. it's it's Rick, yeah ricardo federici um yeah. Anyway, he, he yeah, his art. Apologies to Federico. Yeah, yeah. His, yeah, his art was fantastic when we got to have interior. I mean, a great cover artist. Don't don't get me wrong. Um, uh, we also should point out that uh, one of my favorite cover artists does a cover for this issue, uh, Lee Bermejo. Of course, that's the cover that I that I got. Uh, well, I did mention there's a backup as well that deals with Conduit and uh, <laughs> the Superman family members that are still um, on earth. And uh, as I said, Theola and, you know, we find out what well, we knew previously that Amanda Waller was the one that put conduit up to it and wanted him to go and steal the Genesis fragment for her. And of course, when conduit gets in trouble in typical Amanda Waller fashion, she totally abandons him. And all I could think is, God, she's such a scumbag. Uh, I don't know why any villain would ever do anything for her. You know, you know, you're going to get the short end of the stick, but, um, it, it, the story is also written by Philip Kennedy Johnson, arts by David Lapham, uh, Trish Mulvihill does the colors, Dave Sharp on letters. And I, I kind of covered it already. I, I like the fact that the story is here. Um, it may be, uh, plant some seeds for more conduit in the future. He may be more powerful. He may not need his armor based on the fact that the Genesis fragment kind of explodes while he's holding it and uh, interacts with the the kryptonite that's in his costume and in his blood. So we'll have to see how that plays out in the long run. But yeah, we still don't know exactly what the final, um, final fate of Theola is. So uh, curious to see how that plays out. Curious to see if this Genesis fragment 
you know, again, seeds planted for possible future stories. So uh, I am enjoying the backup, even if I feel like, you know, David Lapham is a legend. Again, I'm, I'm a fan of his art. Don't know if it's the best for really kinetic superhero type fights. Uh, for Slice of Life, he, his art style is perfect for even kind of crime noir or more humor type books. I think it's also perfect. But for superhero, classic superhero stuff, I just don't know that his style is is the best. So, uh, anyway, what are your thoughts, Rob? Uh, well, I actually i've been I've been less of a fan of the backup. Uh, frankly, I think it's it's just it's not necessary. We didn't need it. We we don't need this backup. We don't we don't need to know what happens to Theola back on Earth. It, she's not essential to the story at all, really. Uh, she was made essential to the story in that they had to provide information back to War World so that they, they could access the big war machines to to release the uh, uh, yellow sun to power up the Theologians in War World. But that could have been done another way. I think this is too much of a. Uh, you mentioned it. The, uh, there's too much of an artistic jarring change. I think that even for, in, with respect to trades, I don't think it's. I don't think it's a necessary part of the story. I don't think we needed Conduit here. Uh, it's okay to see him. Uh, there's an interesting moment here where Conduit touches the Genesis fragment. The Genesis fragment literally gets destroyed, which really tells me right off the bat that we didn't need it anyway. Uh, it's destroyed literally uh, when when. Uh, when conduit touches it and then he alludes to he hallucinates somebody says he's awake now he sees us he's coming is is he if he is he referencing the great darkness is he referencing somebody else it's just i i get it uh i just thought it was cliche i actually think that it's such a vis- it's so visually different artistically different from the main story between the painted version and even the, the new art here that we saw today i i just i don't think it's necessary but it's it's cool, it, it, you know. It, it's all well and good, but it's just not necessary. But uh, you know, that's me. Yeah. Nitpicking. Is it worth? Is it worth a dollar more for these yeah. backups? No, I, it's I don't not. think so. It, it never it, has it, been. Yeah, yeah. We've, I think we've always said that. Yeah. Just. But, uh, yeah. All I can think of. I mean, you make a good point about the Genesis fragment. The fact that it was destroyed means it wasn't necessary. Yeah, it, it was 100 percent a plot device right from the beginning, um, and that's kind of what this what this shows. So. Yeah. Uh, anyway, let's go ahead and move on. Up next, we have Batman White Knight uh, presents Red Hood number two. This is from the story and the cover by Sean Gordon Murphy. Clay McCormick uh, actually handles the scripting. We have George Cambadas does the art for pages one through 20. And then Simone DeMeo does the art for the last few pages, 21 through 24. Dave Stewart on colors and annual design on letters. What do you think of this? Uh, it's it's pretty good. I, I like the opening issue. I actually like this new sort of like uh, bigger boned Robin. This 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 gone. I guess her name is or Gan or gone. And uh, this sort of continues the story. Last last in the opening issue, we got sort of the origin story where where essentially Red Hood gets a partner of his own. He gets a sidekick of his own. Although calling her a sidekick might be a little bit insulting in, in this day and age. She's not a sidekick. She's a partner to Red Hood, and she's his Robin. And he becomes uh, this story is just him getting you know growing some affection for her in a mentor mentee kind of way, and uh, he trains her and. Uh, ultimately, she wants to help take down Shriek, uh, a Batman villain, and this this is just this is just Jason Todd, you know. Uh, it, it's just the the story of you know you know Gan's evolution as as Robin, and Red Robin sort of coming to terms with the fact that, or pardon me, Red Hood, <laughs> apologies, Red Hood coming to terms with, with his own kind of redemptive arc in terms of him getting back in the groove again because. 
there's a part of him that's maybe never really maybe felt worthy of being a partner. He's still dealing with a baggage from when from the fact that he he betrayed Batman by revealing Batman's secret identity to the Joker, uh, because in in this particular universe of of in the White Knight universe in the, in the Murphy verse, Red Hood. Uh, Jason Todd was not killed by Joker. Rather, he betrayed Batman by revealing the Joker, Batman's secret identity. And that guilt drove Jason Todd sort of into hiding. He's coming out here and he's training gone. And this is a nice issue. I, I enjoyed it. it. It had some humorous moments. It had some uh, great, great action scenes uh, between uh, Shriek and Gan, uh, or Gone, you know, f- f- fighting and her, her leaving Jason Todd to try to prove herself. And uh, I, I thought it was pretty good. Uh, nothing really. I don't think it really reveals anything that we that we need that we really need to know. Um, I thought it was very by the numbers. It wasn't. I, I don't. You know. Didn't. Um, here's the thing with the Murphy verse. Uh, Sean Gordon Murphy. Sean. He, he's always impressed the hell out of me. And there's always some. He's really good at giving us little subtle moments of revelation and what have you. He hasn't really done that here. Uh, that's, that's by no means a put down. Uh, I just, this actually feels like just a, a relatively straightforward tale, but, a, but an enjoyable one. And I'm actually looking forward to see, because this takes place in the past. I'm looking forward to see how this new Robin character, if she makes an appearance in the actual story proper of, uh, in the current, uh, series of the white Knight, And so, I enjoyed it. It's you know, uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed it. It's it's nothing, nothing, nothing really stands out. But it it is a new Robin, and, and quite, to be quite frank, it's kind of it's actually nice to see a, a female Robin that I that I enjoy because I didn't like Stephanie Brown <laughs> when she when she was Robin. So what do you think of it? Yeah, I kind of get what you're saying. There's nothing you know hugely revelatory here. There's no cliffhanger. There's no uh, you know nothing that's like a holy crap moment. But what it does do is it does shine a light on the fact that Jason Todd is the first Robin, which, uh, which you know, Sean Gordon Murphy has, has talked at length about, you know, making that mistake and then turning it into something that's really interesting. And I, I fully agree with that. Um, if you, if you haven't read any of these Sean Gordon Murphy verse White Knight books, oftentimes in the back, uh, there's little essays where he talks about, you know, developing the story and why he made certain choices that he made. And so several of them were uh, issues where Jason Todd has showed up. He's talked about, you know, making that mistake and then kind of owning it. And uh, it's really interesting and it opens up so many different avenues in it. It's something that really sets apart the Sean Gordon Murphy verse from the regular DC continuity. The fact that Jason Todd was the first Robin and, you know, what's his trauma and, um, so that's really where this, this book has shined. And so there might not be anything in it that's really kind of groundbreaking or, um, you know, super holy crap moment, like I said, but there's a lot of, um, kind of intrinsic value just built into the fact that, you know, this is the first Robin and you're getting a chance to see him contextually, what makes him tick? How is he dealing with the fact that he betrayed Batman, you know, that, the fact that he betrayed Batman is goes all the way back to the very first Sean Gordon Murphy White Knight series. You know that was part of the way that Jack Napier, the Joker, was able to take uh, Batman down. You know it, it all it all leads back to Jason Todd at the end of the day. So you know he's still carrying that tra- trauma around, and this was well uh, paced and kind of well planned out in terms of most of it being a flashback story, and then finishes up in current 
continuity for the Sean Gordon Murphy verse, like, uh, like Rocky said. So we'll get to see, you know, it, is there redemption possible for this version of, of Jason Todd for this red hood? Um, should there, should there be, you know, based on who he is and, uh, what he's been through. Um, so those are interesting questions and the, definitely, um, it's definitely a departure, like I said, from, from the regular DC continuity. And you get Sean Gordon Murphy's art, which is never a bad thing. So um, it's really, uh, really pretty, pretty solid. And the fact that he, it's Clay McCormick that's doing the scripting, who that's somebody that, um, that Sean Gordon Murphy has been co- kind of collaborating with and, and using as an editor since the very beginning. So he's definitely familiar with this, uh, this world. So that all works on a really great level as well. And then when we talk about the interior art by George uh, Combatis, uh, his style is not quite as as visceral as uh, Sean Gordon Murphy's style, uh, but it still works for the story, especially because it's a flashback. So I don't mind having a style that's a little more cartoony in a way. Um, so I think it works on that level as well. Um, but I got to admit that I don't, I don't enjoy it as much as I enjoy Sean Gordon Murphy's art. Uh, I just think, I mean, part of the fact is it's uh, Murphy illustrating his own story. Right? So he definitely knows where he wants to kind of spend his time. Um, and it's kind of his ideas, you know, directly onto the page. So nothing against Combatis, but there's just something about Sean Gordon Murphy's world rendered as he's rendered it. Cause you know, he started out, drawing it himself uh, in that first white knight series. And so whenever I'm in the Sean Gordon Murphy verse, I just sort of expect it to look like Sean Gordon Murphy style, if you know what I mean. But again, to take nothing away from Combatis here, cause he does, uh, he does a fantastic job. So, uh, all right, <clears throat> excuse me. Up next, we have Batman fortress number four. Um, this series has really surprised me how much, uh, I've enjoyed it. It's just been fantastic. It's written by Gary Whitta, and it was kind of a funny situation when I mentioned, I think we were talking about the second issue. Uh, I was like, yeah, I think he's written some screenplays or whatever. I mean, the guy wrote, um, you know, Rogue One, Star Wars Story, and uh, very successful writer. Uh, the art's by Derek Robertson. Colors are by Diego Rodriguez. Letters by Simon Boland. Uh, it's starting to come together in terms of we get to see a little bit more of the aliens that are looking for – Superman, it's still a mystery where Superman is. We find out that not only is Superman missing, apparently he took his Fortress of Solitude with him. Um, kind of similar to the Sean Gordon Murphy verse. This, you know, we know this is not in the regular DC continuity, but Witta and Robertson throw in little nods to uh, continuity. We get this chipmunk looking uh, Green Lantern creature. So, Anybody who's a big Green Lantern fan will know that the chipmunk-like Green Lantern in the regular continuity is, is named Chip, C-H apostrophe P. Uh, and so we get uh, an appearance of a, a chipmunk-like Green Lantern here, but his name is Dale. So a little throwback to uh, – or a little nod to Disney, uh, Rescue Rangers, Chip and Dale, the two chipmunks that oftentimes – well, at least they started off as um, – antagonist for Donald Duck. So I thought that was really, really fun. We get a detective chimp sighting. We even get a nod to the deer hunter, if you can believe it. There's a scene in uh, detective chimp's 
bar where uh, John Constantine is playing Russian roulette and you can't see the image. If you've ever seen deer hunter, um, the very famous role uh, from Christopher Walken, or he had the red bandana tied around his, uh, his forehead. You can't look at that image from uh, Derek Robertson. If you've seen deer hunter, not think of Christopher Walken. So I thought that was great as well. Um, so all these little nods have just kind of enriched the story. The Derek Robertson art is, is fantastic as his art usually is. Um, but my favorite thing, my favorite thing about this series is the characterization of, of Batman from Gary Whitta. Um, Batman drops one liners as good as any action hero, you know, as good as any Arnold Schwarzenegger or, or Sylvester Stallone movie or whatever. Um, he just one after another. And oftentimes it make me laugh out loud and it, it just adds a level of humor. That's fantastic. So Batman, we saw last issue went and asked uh, Lex Luthor to team up needs to find Superman feels like that's his only chance for taking out this alien invasion. So they're out there in the middle of nowhere, Arctic circle. And Lex mentions that, you know, he's like, did you ever think we would, uh, you know, team up together? And uh, did you ever think this would happen? things hadn't been different mazes, how it would be. And Batman's like, yeah, if you, you mean if you weren't a megalomaniac? And <laughs> Luther kind of pushes back on that, saying, hey, well, you're the one that dresses up like a bat. Why do you do that, by the way? Is this something back in your childhood? You can tell me. We're out in the middle of nowhere. No, you know, no one's around. And Batman, without missing a beat, like, yeah, perfect place to leave you for dead. I mean, it's just, it's lines like that that, again, have me laughing out loud and that I, I just, I, I really, really, really enjoy. And when things go sideways... Again, because Luther can't help but be Luther when they run into these aliens out there in the Arctic because the aliens have traced um, uh, kind of the residual energy of Superman to the location of his Fortress of Solitude. Luther gives the order to have a sniper try to take one of them out. And, of course, that goes sideways. And as Luther's falling through a crevice that one of these aliens creates, Batman uh, saves him. And, you know, <laughs> Luther's is like, oh, thanks. And I was like, you know what? I regret it already. <laughs> so, uh, again, it's just lines like that that really help balance out the, kind of the gravity and consequences of the story that's been going on. Um, especially the scene between a Batman and Detective Chimp or Batman. You can you can almost hear the pain in his voice when he's talking about the fact that Victor's dead, Diana, Arthur and John and uh, Carter Hall have all been captured. Uh, he's going to fight like hell to save his friends, even if, you know, the end of the world is coming. Uh, so you kind of need that balance, right? So Garrett has definitely shown his writing prowess by balancing out those heavy moments with some lighter one-liners here or, or there. So uh, I'm really enjoying this. Um, and it's not that I necessarily thought I wouldn't, but, you know, DC puts out so much Batman content you know, I, I can't help but just kind of when one comes out, you know, a new uh, Batman miniseries or, or a new Batman series is announced, just kind of shrug my shoulders and go, uh, you know, I guess I'll check it out. Um, and a lot of times they end up being pretty good. You know, the jock story that we finished covering not too long ago ended up being, you know, very, very good as well. But, man, not every Batman story can be a home run, but uh, this one is is a home run. I, I'm absolutely loving this. What do you, what do you think, Rob? I've been enjoying this. This this is Batman who is out of his mainstream continuity. 
And I, I like that because it allows it allows uh, Gary Whitta to have a little bit a little bit more freedom to do with to to bestow upon Batman his own particular interpretation of Batman's personality and way of looking at things. And and that that difference is re uh, reinforced by uh, Gary uh, by Gary Robertson's art, which is a uh, uh, oh, part of me. Uh, not it's not Gary Robertson. It's uh, Derek. Derek Robertson's art, yeah, and it it works so well. I mean, the Fortress of Solitude is missing. I mean, Superman's missing. These aliens are looking for a Kryptonian. They're looking for a Superman, and uh, you know, so uh, Batman uh, takes Lex Luthor to the to the to up north to you know because he needs Lex Luthor's resources because Lex Luthor in this particular continuity is president of the United States. Lex Luthor is kind of a cocky uh, is a cocky cocky curious uh Lex Luthor who's kind of a jerk and Batman is a smart ass and I kind of like that way and as you said he's got a sense of humor about him that is that is I think more entertaining or at least a breath of fresh air different than the mainstream Batman that we've become accustomed and I kind of like that you can kind of tell and guess and this is uh, as a general comment there's a lot of writers that DC has uh, there's been a lot of screenwriters that Bat- that DC has employed to write Batman in the last few years and you can kind of tell because they're they're you, you can almost kind of tell they're that that freedom they're taking with the personalities that the differences in the mainstream Batman and you know it's it's interesting some readers it 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 upsets their sensibilities a bit because they're so attached to the mainstream Batman they get upset with any kind of deviation from the norm and it doesn't matter how many times you you tell them this is not mainstream Batman they still just can't get out of that box and and that's fine I respect that to each their own you know as readers we're all entitled to take take out of a story whatever we want but and I I'm guilty of that too sometimes it's it's just the way it is uh but this is something where I've been able to like you sort of take sort of sit back relax this is just a I mean my god Batman is meeting with you know Dale I mean basically a Green Lantern chipmunk he leads him to uh he leads him to Bibble the, the the detective chimp detective chimp leads him to uh tells him that the fortress is apparently at the bottom of the ocean at the Marianas Trench and it ends with Batman acknowledge admitting that he needs a thief because when they find the fortress they're going to have to get in there and steal some stuff namely some weapons to help them deal with the aliens and what thief is he referring to we're not sure my guess is catwoman but who knows um no way it's i tell you exactly who it is because he also they uh, also mentioned or what what no they well they also mentioned i mean i could be wrong maybe it will be catwoman but my thought is that right before he mentions he needs a thief they talk about the complexity of it being the Marianas Trench, you know, deepest place. They need somebody that's got, you know, oh. experience underwater. Ah. It's got to be black. It's got to be Black Manta, right? That's a good point. It's probably, but it makes more sense, I guess. Black Manta, he's definitely yeah. good at stealing stuff too. Yeah. <laughs> but you know what? I hope it's Black Manta and Catwoman, and I hope he puts together a crew for the heist. And those are the first two he goes and recruits. Yeah, and maybe, maybe even one of the rogues. You know, one of the rogues, like Captain cold or something or you know anyways but i i like the fact that you know this is gary Witta. He, it's it, it, he's having fun he, he's he's a he's a kid in the sandbox and he gets to play with with whatever toys he wants because there's no rules because he's playing he's kind of making up his own continuity as he goes here and you know uh we're along for the ride and i'm enjoying it and i'm i'm hoping most readers uh, uh do as well because this is a lot of fun and i just want to say that i've i've i, I also want to give a compliment this series has one thing that I don't see a lot of a lot, and that is that the covers actually reflect the interior of the comic book, the main, yeah. the, the cover A's. I love the fact that cover A, this main cover, I love it. 
Uh, you know, I mean, Batman's saying something so ridiculously cliche on the cover, follow me if you want to live, which really has nothing, you know, doesn't actually take place in the comic itself, but I, I like it. It's, it's more of a, you know, co covers are often nowadays are just sort of thematic references. At best, they're metaphors of the interior. I like, I really miss the old days of uh, having a cover more reflective of the interior. And, and frankly, other than the dialogue here, I like this cover because I, I just wish we would go back to that more and more. And I'd be curious to know who made the cover decisions on this, if Gary Weta had any uh, input on that as well. But Because I'm enjoying this series. Yeah, it's it's just a lot of fun. Again, the the humor, the you know, balanced out with the stakes, and yeah, the artwork by Derek Robertson is as good as as good as it usually is. I'll say, as good as anything he's ever done. So, uh, all right, up next we have Deathstroke Incorporated number twelve. This is from writer Ed Brisson. Artist by Dexter Soy. Colors by Veronica Gandini. Letters by Steve Wands. What do you think of this one? Uh, you know what? I was, I thought this entire series was going to be a little bit of an afterthought for me. This is Deathstroke. This is, uh, this is chapter three of an Ed Brisson story. Just, uh, just restating Deathstroke origin, Deathstroke's origin, which frankly, I've always, as we stated before, us longtime readers, we already know, or at least we, we certainly know different versions of it. I wasn't, I don't know if anybody was really asking for an origin story. This is the first chapter where it actually, I was actually intrigued by it because I was really curious to see what Ed Brisson's take was going to be on the first meeting between Green Arrow, Oliver Queen, and Slade Wilson. Because uh, longtime readers of VC Comics knows that Slade Wilson and Green Arrow are sort of their – they've always had an ongoing rivalry between each other. And in particular, the head of that rivalry really came to a halt in Identity Crisis where – uh, Green Arrow took out Slade Wilson's eye. That was really, I think, the height of that rivalry. And uh, I was really curious to see how Ed Brisson would script the first battle between Slade Wilson and Green Arrow. And I'm very happy to report that I wasn't disappointed. Ed Brisson did a good job here. The art by Dexter Soy uh, did not disappoint. I thought it was really good. Uh, this is a young Green Arrow at the start of his career. And he's basically facing a young Slade Wilson, although this Slade Wilson, while he might have experience uh, in the military, is still young in terms of uh, getting acclimated to his sort of enhanced human abilities and powers and healing factor. And he's he's clearly neither Green Arrow or Slade Wilson in their first confrontation with each other. They're both ill prepared to face each other because they're learning they're learning much to both of their chagrins that. They both get their, they both kick each other's asses here. And I thought Ed Brisson did a really good job of going back and forth in their battle. Uh, you know, Slade, you know, Deathstroke will get one up on Green Arrow, then Green, you know, look like Green Arrow was taken off the board, then Green Arrow would come back. And all, all with this notion that Deathstroke is trying to essentially fulfill his contract of taking out and assassinating the doctor who was responsible for the military program that created enhanced soldiers of which Deathstroke was the only survivor. So, when Green Arrow comes on the scene and he's there to actually protect this doctor while this Deathstroke, uh, Deathstroke, of course, wants to take him out. Uh, Deathstroke wants to – what, what I find fascinating here is Ed Brisson's psychological um, approach to Deathstroke. He, he scripts a, a Slade Wilson that is almost obsessed with being successful. And I found that actually – a little bit new for me. And I thought it was, I thought good for you, Ed Brisson. He actually, he approached the way that he scripts Slade Wilson here. At the end here, Slade Wilson would rather die 
failing to accomplish his a successful hit, he would rather die than be imprisoned and captured by Green Arrow. And he actually prevents Green Arrow from shooting him with uh, an arrow to rescue him from, from falling down a skyscraper at the end. This is hardcore Slave Wilson. And it's it's actually kind of sad because we saw in the previous two issues how Slade Wilson was not really doing a good job. It's like he's resisting fatherhood. He's resisting those child bonding, those bonding moments with his, with his child, with his son. And he's, he wants to be, he wants to be the best. He wants his life to have meaning. And for, for Slade Wilson, his meaning, the meaning that he brings to his life at this point in his life, isn't being a father to his son, but rather to be the best military, the best assassin there is. And you really see it here. And he's so downtrodden by his defeat by Green Arrow that uh, and that he would actually would appear rather die in failure and maintain his honor than actually risk being captured. I thought that was really fascinating, and it actually worked. I I understood what at least I believe I did. I understood what Ed Brisson, the the psychology of what uh, and the the character work that Ed Brisson has done with Slade Wilson here in three short issues. So I was actually pretty impressed. Again, the art by Dexter Soy it really worked for me. I really was impressed with uh, Green Arrow as well. I thought that Green Arrow himself was his typical liberal do-gooder, exactly what you expect Green Arrow to be. Oliver Queen at the at you know still a little like doe-eyed and a uh, little naive, uh, but but some great action sequences here. And 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 of, and in this issue, while all this is going on, Addie, his wife, is is revealed to be pregnant with their second child. The difference being that this time. Uh, She's pregnant from Slade, with Slade already being uh, gone through the 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 manipulations of his body by the military, suggest which would suggest why their his subsequent child would have some some powers. But in any event, uh, what do you think of it? Yeah, so interesting. Uh, you, this is like your favorite issue so far. I, I'll say this is my least favorite issue so far, and I, I don't really? say that to say that this this was bad. It was fantastic. It was a lot of fighting, uh, a lot of action, but not as much character work. And so that's really? for me is why I didn't enjoy it as much as the the previous issues. The character work that we did get was was fantastic. You mentioned it, where Slade basically prevents a Green Arrow from saving him. You know, uh, f- you know, seemingly falls to his death rather than be captured. Uh, and this idea of being so driven and wanting to complete his contract and everything, uh, that was great as well. But yeah, a lot of this is is just out and out action. And as much as I love that, I I really have been enjoying the character work that Ed Brisson has done. That that's my favorite part of the story that he's been crafting. So we get a little bit less of that here. And so this for me was just a notch below what we've had uh, previously. But I'll say the Dexter Soy art. Uh, is really fantastic, very kinetic. He handles uh, 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 all the action scenes really, really well because these aren't the easiest action scenes. First of all, Ed's got it raining. Uh, and second of all, there's it's not just Slade and Green Arrow. We've got uh, the doctor that he's going after. We've got you know skyscrapers are up on a building. Uh, we've got all these different agents that are trying to protect the doctor. So there's a lot of, uh, a lot of characters, a lot of moving parts. And uh, Dexter Soy does a fantastic job. So... Um, the, the, the other thing that I'll, I'll mention great covers by Mikhail Yanin, by the way. Um, but the fact that this is still Deathstroke Incorporated, like I had forgotten what the, what this was. And I went to pit, open it up to read it. And I was like, 
oh, I, so a Dark Crisis tie-in, right? Because Deathstroke's so heavily involved in Dark Crisis. Then I was like, oh, no, wait, not Dark Crisis. Yes, Ed Brisson writing Deathstroke. Fantastic. So, yeah, it doesn't make any sense that it's still called Deathstroke Incorporated, but I get it. Deathstroke's over in the pages of Dark Crisis right now. Um, and if they want to keep the story going after with some fallout with uh, Deathstroke Incorporated and uh, the Secret Society of Supervillains and whatever comes after the end of um, uh, Dark Crisis, I guess, uh, you know, keep this going. So I'm not sure sure how long Ed Brisson's story is going to be, but if it goes – we know Dark Crisis goes to the end of the year. So if this goes, I guess, three more issues – um, as a six part story, it would, it would coincide with that. So I guess we'll have to wait and see. Uh, all right. Up next, we have DC mech part two. Kenny Porter is the writer. Baldemar Rivas is the artist. Mike Spicer on colors, Tom Napolitano on letters. I don't have a whole lot to say about this, uh, series. Um, I think I said it all the first time. <laughs> I'm not a big giant kaiju slash mech fan. Um, so th- I'm definitely not the target audience for this. Uh, Baldemar Rivas's art is is very kinetic. He handles drawing the giant mechs really, really well. But I do feel like I, I can't lay all the blame on on Rivas. I think the story is a little bit choppy, and the art feels a little bit choppy at times. Um, it feels like we're missing a panel or two here or there. Um, and then the other part of it is Batman's characterization in the story. He's just a dick. There's no other way to say it. He's completely unlikable. And I get that you can have a Batman that's kind of rough around the edges, um, but usually there's some kind of redeeming something or other. Um, there's not much redemptive about this version of Batman. I just I find every time he opens his mouth, all I can think is, man, he's such a jerk. Why would anybody want to have anything to do with him? So that's a bit of a, a problem. And I and I get it. Like Porter's probably setting up this situation where, especially with Superman, this, this version of Superman newly arrived on earth and Batman completely mistrusting him um, that there's going to be some, you know, great scene at the uh, end or climax of the story where they start to see eye to eye. Maybe it'll have something to do with the name Martha. Um, Although no, I guess it can't because this Superman doesn't even have an adoptive mother (laughs) named Martha. Maybe, maybe on another one of the planets he was on, who knows? Um, But I'm being, I'm being facetious, but you know, yeah, he's setting up some moment where, you know, some light bulb goes off over Batman's head and, oh, this guy is a true hero, blah, blah, blah. Um, so that's just really cliche at this point. And uh, I just – it makes it not – it makes me not want to read it. You know, as much as I'm not a fan of the genre of, of these giant robots, um, a Batman that's so unlikable, just I, – I don't want to read it, you know? Um, so I'm hoping it gets better. I'm hoping – to they can kind of sand the rough edges off this Batman. But um, for me, this is only, this is only okay. So what are your thoughts? Well, I just want to, I want to give Kenny Porter some uh, props for his imagination, having fun with this DC mech. I mean, he's using Alan Scott's green lantern as the power source to create this, uh, this mechanical creature that is piloted by Hal Jordan. The weapon system is controlled by John Stewart. And it's built with Amazonian tech. And Wonder Woman with her Amazonian metal metal DC mech is 
helping train this new Green Lantern mech at the beginning of this uh, issue. And as because they're training, because ultimately this is an entire universe that's overtaken by Darkseid and Darkseid has taken over not only the the entire universe, but even Krypton itself was aware of the threat of Darkseid. That's why Jor-El and Lara in this particular universe sent Superman, the Superman and the Kal-El with the mechanized Kryptonian mech suit uh, to Earth, uh, because even though Krypton is destroyed, they're sending their only son Kal-El to help protect uh, Earth. And along the way, Kal-El has, it's taken Kal-El a long time to get to Earth because he has stopped along the way and helped other planets do battle against Darkseid. So I like the story there. I actually, this is a, you, you mentioned it, you didn't like, you don't like Batman's characterization here because Batman's more distrusting than he normally is. He's extremely, uh, he, he's very distrusting of Superman. Although in fairness, even the Flash and some of the other heroes were initially distrusting of Kal-El because he shows up on Earth and no one's ever seen him before. And, and he, he, he's got this mechanical, very powerful mechanical, uh, I guess, machine himself and so it's, it takes a while and you're right it's it's likely going to be it's it's likely going to be the fact that you know it's going to be superman winning over uh batman's trust i personally wish there was i liked wonder woman's here wonder woman's portrayal here i wish i wish i would i'd like to see a little bit more uh wonder woman uh as opposed to the the trinity is important and i i just think that wonder woman always gets short thrift here I like to see that she shone a little bit here in this issue. I know it's just a DC mech issue. And I said before and I say it again, I I would actually I would love to see Todd McFarlane do a Wonder Woman DC mech figure. I think that would be pretty cool because I think it looks it looks the coolest in this particular issue. This is a lot of fun. And uh I think this is right up Kenny Porter's uh, alley. Uh and uh you know, I for those people that are into Transformers and the like, I you know, I've read a couple of Transformers issues in the last few months. This is just as fun, if not more interesting, than some of the stuff I'm reading over in Transformers. So why not have fun in the DC universe and get and uh, also rub that Transformer vibe? You know, because this this is the comic for you. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't wouldn't disagree, but there's a reason I don't read Transformers. It's just not <laughs> just not my thing. So, uh, all right, let's move on. Uh, we have Detective, Detective Comics number one thousand sixty three from writer Rom V. Raphael Albuquerque is the artist. Dave Stewart does the colors. Ariana Mare on letters. And then there is a backup written by Cy Spurrier. Uh, Danny is the artist. Dave Stewart does colors. Steve Wands on letters. Uh, what do you think of the main story here? Uh, uh, Ram V continues to tell a story that uh, I'm interested in. Uh, my, my nitpicks are, I would definitely call them nitpicks. Uh, it's, it's kind of interesting that he's, the, the background here is, you know, there's a there's a power vacuum in Gotham and Bruce, it starts off with Bruce Wayne sort of confronting Two-Face, who's who's basically watching a sexy woman sing a song. And and uh, and uh, this is the, the title of this particular story arc is called Overture. This is Overture Part Two and Overture meaning Overture meaning music and music has a lot of symbolism in this story. It's the music of the of the music box that this this master Arzen and this Anatole Orphan uh, or this uh, Anatole Orgham family, which is the original, which was the Orgham family, eventually became the Ar- the Asylum or the part of me the Arkham family over time. So music, uh, they have a music box, and it's related, of course, to the uh, the, the the great noise of the. the 
Krakoa volcano that erupted and it's it's sort of like black music and it's and so music and dark music has a theme to it and uh and this and Two-Face is kind of reformed here this is Harvey Dent this is during one of his more sane moments he's 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 saying he's he even wears a golden mask on the side of his face. I think implying artistically that's the way uh, to suggest that Two Face is, has his sanity back, or or at least Harvey Dent is more in control as opposed to Two Face. But Bruce Wayne feels that something is off. Uh, we know that uh, Barbatos, Bruce Wayne's been hallucinating, speaking to Barbatos in the first issue. We know that Bruce Wayne feels something is off, something is wrong. Uh, there's a darkness entering uh, 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 Gotham City, and it's it's revealed that what it is is that there's this uh, lady Shav Shavhood and her master Arzan, and they're basically descendants of this Anatole Orgham, who back in 1692 was actually sold and leased and purchased the land upon which Gotham is is lo- is located, and over the centuries they changed their name to Arkham. And apparently, and this is where I guess maybe the lawyer in me sort of shakes his head. It's like, yeah, right. You're going to claim ownership of Gotham on the basis of an old piece of paper and lease. You know, good luck with that. I think the aboriginals and the Indians tried that in America multiple times and we know how that turned out for them. But in any event, uh, you can have fun with that. Uh, the fact that this expands, that Ram V is expanding on the history of you know, the Arkham family and Arkham Asylum. That's certainly been done before. This is Ramvi's interpretation of it. I think it's it's interesting. I think the uh you know, I, I'm not sure where it's where it's gonna go. This the idea this 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 Eduardo Arkham, this land title deed that somehow gives this old family power and people are apparently they're upset that people are forgetting that they really own Gotham and so that they're returning to Gotham and they have all this power and they have this almost supernatural power and this lady this lady shovehood shovehood at the beginning she's got these really strange looking eyes she looks she's got this curious little uh, eye you know framing over her her left her right her uh, left eye uh and it's it's almost like she's got three eyeballs and they're her eyes are orange and she's got three eyeballs it's on each eye it's it's really she's kind of eerie looking and weird looking uh, but it's fascinating. Meanwhile, Br- Batman himself, he's got this music box that he, that he found and, and he, he goes to, uh, the maestro, the maestro, uh, who is Payne Cardine, the maestro and maestro tells him that the, the music box releases black noise. And the last time there was black noise on the planet was in 1883 when the volcano Krakato Krakotoa erupted and it, the sound waves covered the earth seven times. And I know that's actually a fact from, from, from my history and whatever geology or whatever. So it's fascinating. Ram V is having fun with a little bit with real world history and, and introducing maybe the supernatural and incorporating Batman history in, with Arkham Asylum. So I uh, still don't know what's going to come of all this. I'm not sure what, what ultimately the game is here. Uh, but the very clearly, uh, very clearly something, uh, something is at play here. And whatever the machinations of this Ogham family are, they want to, they apparently it involves Two-Face. They want to manipulate Two-Face so that uh, essentially Two-Face becomes a, a gangster again. They want, they want to control Two-Face and utilize him and, and take control of him. And uh, this, this by a guy by the name of Gall. T- 
Ken Claw approaches Two Face and asks him, uh, ask him if he has any knowledge of the Asmer and they they're ancient beings of rage and they they want to control Two Face and Two Face is part of their plans to take over Gotham and the land that they originally released and owned back in 1692 and and again. A little bit of a Court of Owls type of feel. It makes me wonder if the Court of Owls aren't going to show up because it would seem to me that the Court of Owls may take issue with with another group claiming ownership. And so I got all these questions in my head. But I like that Ram V is really going out there. But I got I got a lot more questions than I do answers right now. But I have to admit, I'm fully intrigued by this. I'm, um, and uh, Raphael Albuquerque's art, I think, really works. I'm really intrigued by it. And in particular, at the very end, I love that we get hints that the darker side of Harvey Dent, Two-Face, is manifesting itself and is basically saying, let me take over and deal with these bastards, Harvey. Why, why are you so weak? I like that. So... Ram, I, I enjoy it. In fact, the more I'm talking to you about it, the more I realize I enjoy this more than I realize. So I'm, I'm in this. I'm so far second issue in. I enjoy this more than the second issue as, as the themes and everything in the story is really starting to come into, come into, come into play here. So uh, what do you think? Oh, you're on mute. Sorry there. <clears throat> yeah, I'm not enjoying it as much as you, um, but I, I will say it is, I sort of expected this. Um, so I'm, I am a fan of Ram V and his, and his writing, but his style of writing, he, he, he's got very big ideas and they're often sort of philosophical and they're not, you know, his, his, um, his ideas, the things, the themes that he explores are these ideas and questions that aren't easily answered. Um, so at, at times it can come off as a little pretentious. You know, like at the end of the day, it's just Swamp Thing. You know, he's just a guy made out of plants. <laughs> this is just a guy that dresses up like a bat. Um, and so I knew coming when it was announced it, and he, you know, he talked about opera and all the things that he was inspired by and these different dirges and types of music and whatnot. Like I knew that this was just not going to be my favorite type of, of Batman story. Cause yeah, he's pulling in from a lot of, a lot of sources and it definitely has that feel of being sort of melancholy and dark and operatic and, and all that. And that's just not my, that's not my preference. You know, it's just not the kind of stories that I, uh, that I enjoy. So that being said, it is true that the fact that he's going back and again, I, I don't know how many times we can retcon stuff into, Gotham City, Arkham Asylum, Court of Owls. I mean, Jesus Christ. Again, I'll ask the question, why does anybody live there? The U.S. government had it completely right in no man's land. They should have just dropped a nuke on it and been done. Hey, let's evacuate everybody and just drop a nuke on the damn place and be done with it. Construct a dome over it and don't let anybody back in there. The place is obviously cursed, right, forever and ever. Well, if so, they would have reelected uh, Lex Luthor, maybe that would have happened. But you should have yeah, voted Lex. Right? <laughs> should have voted Lex. Um, so anyway, I mean, th- I will say this. One of the things that I do really enjoy about this, and again, we're only two issues in, uh, is the fact that we're getting to see, um, we're getting to see Bruce Wayne. You know, it's not just Batman and the cowl all the time. But the other thing, I, I had a couple questions. First of all, so we've we've seen a lot of Two Face as Harvey Dent lately. We've seen it. We see it here. Yeah. We see it in the Task Force Z. Yeah. When when did he get cured? Because I missed that. I, I missed I, that. Did that? 
I, I did too. Did that happen in Detective I, Comics? I Tomasi's honestly, run? I don't remember. Uh, somebody, somebody who's listening or watching this on YouTube can let us know in the uh, comments below. I honestly can't remember. I, I can't remember myself. I, yeah, I don't so, even know. I, I don't even know. I, I th even in Task Force Z, I don't, I don't remember Harvey Dent stating specifically the events that led him to suddenly become sane. I, I don't know. Yeah, and the other uh, the reason I say that is because it cl clearly Bruce goes and hangs out with Harvey while he's at this speakeasy type place, um, and talks. And I'm like, he starts talking about the things that he's been up to. Does Harvey didn't know that Bruce Wayne is Batman? Also, clearly he must from the context yeah. of the conversation. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> so like, I, yes. I had a question about that as well. I was like, wait, what? So if if Harvey flips back over and his two face, two face going to have that knowledge as well. So again, I, this could be a short, uh, you know, shortcoming on my part that I'm not up. I missed some Batman story somewhere. Again, it could have been in that Tomasi Brad Walker run detective. Cause I know two face was in there and I know there's some issues with of that, that I missed. Um, so yeah, I'm just not sure. But so this, this for me is okay. It has every chance of getting better. Um, but I, I don't think it's ever going to be like where I'm saying, oh, this is one of my favorite Batman stories ever. It's just it personally my, to my it's not to my taste. Right. This is a more supernatural type story. Clearly, I'm more of the Batman as a superhero, as a detective, uh, even as a, a physical fighter overcoming um, physical challenges more than I am leaning into the supernatural aspect of it. Um, and I'm certainly not into opera or any, anything like that. So, um, yeah, again, it's just, I expected this from, from Ram V. Um, his, his writing is very, I almost want to say highbrow in a way. Uh, and he is elevating comics and elevating the art form. And I do appreciate that, but his type, his stories are never going to be, Oh, uh, you know, my favorite types of stories. It's just, it's just the way that it is. Um, I do enjoy the backup more from Cy Spurrier, this idea of Jim Gordon as a, as a private eye, kind of sort of teaming up with Harvey Bullock a little, kind of taking the cases that Harvey Bullock doesn't want to. Um, I don't even appreciate the art by Danny, whose art I didn't enjoy that much in um, Arkham City New World Order. It does work a little better for me in this story. Um, but man, I, I just I kind of just wish the Joker series had kept going. But they changed. Well, I guess I want just wanted to. I want a Jim Gordon detective, Jim Gordon private detective series, right? Because we know the Joker story. We talked about it at length. The Joker series was really a Jim Gordon series, um, and I was sad to see it end because I really enjoyed that Jim Gordon series, and I want more Jim Gordon. Uh, and I would definitely read it if Cy Spurrier was writing it, or James Tynan for that matter. So. Uh, here's hoping we get more Jim Gordon in the future. Uh, what do you think of the backup? Um, honestly, I I'm not really enjoying it all that much, to be honest. I think it's confusing. I find it confusing. Also, just to be clear here, the entire story takes place prior to uh, the, the, his appearance in Joker. So this is before Jim Gordon is teaming up with Harvey Bullock. When he talks with Harvey Bullock, he's just he's using Harvey Bullock to just try to get some. Uh, information from him so this is actually before joker issue 15 that ends that arc i and also bear, bearing in mind that he actually is in front of his jim jim gordon spends time 
I don't know why he goes to his son's grave, and uh, because we know that ultimately, Jim, like his son, is actually alive because we's or is at least half dead as a half dead corpse in Joker number fifteen. He's sort of brought brought back by the court of owls uh, as as a talon. So there's that now, but. Uh, straight up, I've read this three times, and I don't know what the point of this is. I, I don't know what Jim Gordon is doing. I, I forgot what he's investigating. There's no clue here. I don't know what the coda is. I don't know what it's referring to. Hey, uh, let me remind you. He was in a bar drinking away his sorrows, uh, dealing with, you know, again, because this apparently story happens between Joker 14 and 15. After he, after he had gone looking for the Joker, but they had come back to Gotham before he left for the final events of whatever happened at the uh, Samson farm. So he's there, he's drinking. A woman shows up. She's been referred to him by um, the, the cop, the bald cop at the end of the issue, the one that you see right there in that uh, last panel in the middle row. Yeah. And she's, she's uh, a prostitute, or at least that's what's implied. And so, and she, her son is missing and she went to the police department and they won't do anything because she's a nobody. She's a throwaway person. And she kind of tugs at Gordon, Gordon kind of brushes her off at first. And then she kind of tugs at her heartstrings. He's thinking of James Jr., his son. Uh, and so he does agree oh. to go investigate. And then he goes and he finds that person or whoever that being is in the last place that uh, his, uh, her son was seen. And then that's where this issue picks up. So we don't really know. There's obviously something, you know, more than meets the eye about that entity or being, and it turns out it wasn't even – that's not even really her son because we see her son here um, being reunited. So this cop probably had that son in lockup the whole time. So clearly whoever this cop is, he's man- manipulating Gordon to try to get him killed or try to discover that being or whatever. And it seems to me at the end of this issue, uh, the reason that he's trapping that woman and her son in this building that's about to be demolished is to tie up the loose ends. So uh, there's a lot going on that we don't know. It's very much a mystery. Um, hmm. But that's kind of a, I don't know if that jars your memory. Uh, it does. Thank you. It, it does. I have a better appreciation for it now. It's just, I guess uh, that's the problem when I read too many comics. I, uh, my apologies to <laughs> yeah. Cy Spurrier. I, uh, I would have to go back and reread this and reread the first part again to truly appreciate this. But because that's, that's the problem with these separated by a month reading this uh, going in like this, yeah. there's just, you know, this is where having a little bit of a, a synopsis at the beginning to, w- would have been helpful. But but that's on me. I take responsibility as the reader to, you know, uh, back in the old day when I was younger and reading comics, I'd, I'd, I'd have the comic readily available to do that. But now <laughs> in any of Yeah, well, the other part of it, the other part of it is as much as I am enjoying this backup to two issues in because it, it's giving me more Jim Gordon. Would I want this backup or would I rather pay a dollar less for the comic? Well, I'd rather pay a dollar less. Because as much as much as I'm enjoying this, like, like you said, eight pages, you don't get a big chunk of story. It's hard to remember. Like, if this is a story you want to tell, then put it in its own book, you know. And yeah, I, I do think when we we've already had a lot of Jim Gordon with the Joker. I don't know why we need this eight page backup. Uh, it it really is completely unnecessary. But it's okay, you know. I mean, kudos to Cy Spurrier gets him some work, and it, it's it's like I say, it's not a bad story. But just think of this is the three part story. It's eight pages. That's twenty four pages of story that we could have gotten as a. Well, I guess there's no such thing as a Jim Gordon standalone comic, so. 
you got to use Jim Gordon as a backup, but there is, it does suffer a little bit when you got three part stories and you're, you're, you're breaking up the eight in eight pages like this. This is definitely a story that, that would absolutely read better, uh, as one full, one full yeah. story. Put it in, put it in a Batman urban legends. Yeah, exactly. That's a good point. So. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on. Uh, up next, we have Olympus Rebirth from writers Michael W. Conrad and Becky Cloonan, Caitlin Yarsky, whose art I've, haven't seen before. Uh, she handles the line work, Jordi Belair on colors, Pat Brosso on letters. Uh, dare I ask what you thought of this Wonder Woman centric uh, title? Oh man. Uh, this is a long, this is a, a longer issue. Five ninety nine cover price. Unfortunately, this is uh this isn't, I don't find this to be much more, uh, much, much better than Artemis, uh, the Artemis one shot, which, I thought it was very much uh, a waste of uh, time and money. Uh, and this here, I just, um, uh, I'm going <laughs> to, I promise I'm going to try to be positive here, but there's a couple of things that uh, I'm going to keep my voice monotone when I say this, but I, for the life of me, I don't understand. It never made any sense to me why Artemis, why Hippolyta had Artemis obtain poison for her and then Hippolyta chose to kill herself. Artemis or Hippolyta was not murdered. She was not murdered. And yet even, even Hippolyta is under the belief that she was. She wasn't. Hippolyta orchestrated her own death and she killed herself, believing that by killing herself and sacrificing herself to the gods, she was helping the Amazons win the trial of the Amazons. And it did no such thing. The Amazons, Wonder Woman and the whole group, they defeated Chaos all on their own. Atalanta, Antiope, they trapped Chaos behind in Doom's doorway. Atalanta and Antiope made that sacrifice. Nonsensically, and I've tried and I've reread this thing twice. Hippolyta in this in this issue, actually, unbelievably, she she goes to the graveyard of the gods and she frees Chaos. <laughs> now, Chaos isn't even supposed to be dead. Chaos is supposed to be trapped behind the doorway. Doom's doorway. Chaos was trapped behind Doom's doorway. Antiope and uh, Antiope and Atalanta were behind Doom's doorway, and they sacrificed their 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 immort their you know they sacrificed themselves by forever being the guards on the other side of Doom's doorway, fighting Chaos and all the other evil forces in Doom's doorway. This issue, this long one shot of Olympus Rebirth. Aside from giving us very, very boring versions of all the Greek gods and insulting versions and humiliating versions of all of them, uh, this one basically says that apparently, apparently chaos was killed and Hip Antiope and Atalanta both died behind Doom's doorway and they're they're, all three of them are in the graveyards of the gods. Hippolyta takes it upon herself to go to the graveyard of the gods, Hippolyta goes to Olympus. She makes it to Olympus and she's a goddess now. And it's never explained why she's a goddess. The fates have determined that she's, she's got to be a goddess now. We're never told why. We're never told why, but she's, and of course, Hippolyta is immediately more intelligent than Zeus. Zeus is a, is a, is humil Zeus is an idiot. All the, all the male gods are idiots. All of them. Uh, the patron goddesses of the Amazons, they're intelligent. They're pretty good. They're the patron goddesses of the Amazon. Artemis is wondering who Hippolyta is supposed to be now. Is Hippolyta the new patron goddess of the Amazons? We don't know. It's not revealed. The mystery of the, the fates, we don't really know. 
But Hippolyta takes it upon herself to go to the graveyard of the gods, trick the gatekeeper of the gods, like her own daughter did, and release chaos. Now, somebody's got to explain to me the logic of her doing that. Why would you release chaos? Your Amazons that you supposedly killed yourself for, Hippolyta, many of them sacrificed their lives to keep chaos behind Doom's doorway, and you've taken it upon yourself to go to the graveyards of the gods and release chaos back to Olympus, where... Where at the end of this, chaos is doing exactly what you would expect chaos to do, and that is uh, enter into machinations with Hera to once again cause chaos for the Amazons. This is the dumbest portrayal of Hippolyta I have ever seen hands down, and she's supposed to be the, the new protector of the Amazons? If this is Hippolyta's idea of protecting her daughter, of protecting the Amazons, they don't need enemies. And I'm wondering why they needed the Greek gods. Because the Greek gods here, it's so comical at, at times, Chase. My favorite scene is, I mean, all these Greek gods, Hermes, uh, Zeus, uh, Dionysus, uh, Poseidon, they're all, they're all classically rendered uh, in their, in their loincloths. And they're, they're all joking around. They're just drinking. They're having fun. One of the things that's specifically stated at the beginning of this is that uh, Becky, writers Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad have made it very clear that that once they were released, once they were uh, saved from the graveyard of the gods by Wonder Woman, they basically essentially recreated themselves, the Greek gods, into these new forms, is, is what they're saying. So this kind of gives Cloonrad, carte blanche, to give us their iteration of the Greek gods. Because to be clear, we got a different iteration of the Greek gods under Greg Rocca. We got one, a different one under, uh, under uh, Brian Azzarello. We had a different one under Gail Simone. We had a different one under John Byrne. There's never been any consistency with how the Greek gods are portrayed. So Clunrad can be forgiven, of course, for doing whatever the hell they want because every writer does. No one, Every writer just does what they want in that regard. Unfortunately for me, I find this very boring. Zeus here is insultingly nauseous as a character. He he actually, I mean, it's so funny. He, at one point, he talks to Hippolyta. Hippolyta goes in to have a conversation with him, and 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 Zeus tells her says and says, "Why don't you come in here and lay on the bed and talk with me, and I'll feed you some grapes." I mean, he, I mean, that's literally the dialogue in some portions of this, and. I hesitate to be too critical in that regard because the dialogue is so over the top and ridiculous but between the male gods and, and, and Hippolyta that I got to think this is a joke. I got to think this is parody. I've said it again. I can't take this story seriously. And, and if I apply any degree of verisimilitude to it, I just end up coming up wanting. Um, I just, and Hera, Hera is just, Hera is just plain jealous of Hippolyta uh, because the, the idea here is that the Greek gods have been brought back, but they've lost all the power because nobody worships them anymore. Can't imagine why not. Nobody worships them anymore. And so they're losing their power. But Zeus doesn't care. Dionysus doesn't care. Hermes doesn't care. The only one who seems to care is Hera, a woman. Uh, Hippolyta is, Hippolyta is the hero. Thank God Hippolyta is there. She shows up and she, she rides, she goes and she brags about freeing chaos. She actually brags about that. She, she restores chaos to Mount Olympus. Says, oh, look, look who's back. Chaos comes back. She's actually bragging about it. And she's, it's like she's rallying the troops. We're going to restore our faith. And, uh, how are you going to restore faith? Let me kiss my daughter here. Good night. But I'm. In any event, so Hippolyta is, 
uh, is rallying the troops here. She's trying to get, she, she wants to save Olympus. She wants to empower the gods, have to, I guess, make sure that Amazons have more faith in the Greek gods. And I'm left wondering to myself, why would anybody want to worship these gr- group of, of, these are genuine buffoons. These are buffoons. These are laughable buffoons as gods. And they're all, I mean, they look ridiculous. This is an embarrassment. And Hippolyta is sitting there giving some speech. And, and, and her logic eludes me too. I, I don't know, like I, I, and Hera is, is like this, is like this villainy, cartoony, you know, almost like Wicked Witch of the East, you know, uh, my pretties. And she just, she hates Hippolyta just because she's jealous. And I, um, and, and, and we're supposed to worry about this lurking. Again, there's this, they actually use the word, there's a looming threat now, which I thought we already had. That is over the mountains that Hippolyta warns them about. And, um, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm extremely disappointed in this. And, uh, Hippolyta at the end hallucinates. The fates have Hippolyta hallucinate killing Hera. It doesn't really happen. So I don't know why it took place. Uh, but the fates apparently wanted to make sure that Hippolyta had it in her to murder somebody. And that's what she did. Okay. Well, I mean, Hippolyta committed suicide. So she's clearly willing to do whatever it takes, including killing herself by drinking poison voluntarily and, and she had so much integrity, she blames Artemis and let, lets Artemis go on a guilt trip based on her machinations, which accomplished nothing for the Amazons. The greatest threat the Amazons ever faced, chaos, Hippolyta has now released again onto Olympus. I don't understand what the hell is going on here story-wise or what Clunrad's trying to do, but I'm... I, I don't understand this from a storytelling point of view. And I get I get a lot of laughter out of this looking at the absurdity of how these characters are rendered and the dialogue is it literally makes me laugh, but I, I, I can't take this story seriously. The art was good. I want to give a shout out to the artist. It's uh Caitlin uh, Yarsky. I thought the art was 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 pretty decent. I thought her particular rendition artistically of the very classic looking Greek gods was all well and good. I just thought it lacked some creativity, but I don't fault that to the artist. I fault that to the uh, the writers who very clearly aren't interested in doing anything new with the Greek gods other than giving us these derivative versions of characters that have been done much better in the past. So what do you think? <laughs> so I want to be, I, I want to be sure I understand. So you didn't like it? <laughs> well, this is it. it. It's funny, but I didn't like the story. No, I thought, I thought, I thought the story was. Well, I, I, I you you know much more about Wonder Woman's history and the gods and all that sort of stuff than I do. So I guess I'm a little confused because I didn't have any trouble following this. First of all, yes, is it ridiculous that uh, Hippolyta voluntarily drank this poison wine that Artemis gave her and calls it murder? Yes, it's completely ridiculous. Have you ever read any of the Greek myths? It's completely in line with the thinking of Greek gods, right? Like – you know, it's the same thing. The Catholic Church is the exact same way. Like, if you pull the trigger yourself, you're going to hell forever. There's no redemption for you, blah, blah, blah. But if you, you know, suicide by cop and someone else pulls the trigger, even though it's, in my mind, the same damn thing, no, then it doesn't matter. So the, the, just the act of, of Artemis putting the poison in the cup and then Artemis giving it to Hippolyta, that, that, absolves Hippolyta from 
you know, if she had put the poison in and then drank it herself. Yeah. At the end of the day, is it the same thing? Yes. Does it make logic in terms of like, hey, Greek myth mythology? Yes, 100% makes sense. Again, like, have you read any of the stories about these Greek gods? It's part of the reason that I don't really enjoy Wonder Woman and that whole aspect. Like, I wish Wonder Woman's origin had nothing to do with Greek gods. It was completely not, like nothing ever had to do. I just don't like it. Yeah. Maybe it's because I had to study way too much Greek mythology uh, in high school and college, and it never made any logical sense to me because these gods – that you know, use the term God, and it's, it's some aspirational figure that's you know knowledgeable and should be better than uh, you know just mortals. And they're you're right, they are buffoons, they are idiots, and they're petty and they're jealous, and frankly, they're stupid. So I I completely buy this. I completely buy that she had to uh, do what she did to. And again, we know why because she had to be she needs to be a champion for the amazons because the god the, the god's time is ending that that was clear in the story right we see that janus is turning to stone not enough people believe in the gods anymore the the time is is ending and thus the the amazons as a race won't have the protection of the gods anymore that's why she went there why did she free chaos because she could she needs to prove that she belongs right she knows that the fact that um, that her daughter Diana Wonder Woman made this deal and tricked uh, the you know the the keeper of the graveyard of the gods that that's n not a good thing that it puts her daughter at danger for retribution so she's killing two birds with one stone she's proven to the other gods that she belongs that she can go and do something that they weren't willing to do themselves they weren't willing to risk themselves how are they going to go and trick the the um, gravekeeper of the gods they didn't even try they're too lazy. They are buffoons. They are uh, unintelligent. She goes in there to prove that she can do it, to prove that she belongs among the gods, to gain some some favor. And it works. And in doing that, what else does she do? Well, she also protects her daughter because now the, the uh, gravekeeper of the gods is, no longer has that to hold over, at least in Hippolyta's mind. Whether that's actually true or not, he seems to still hold the grudge. Now Now it's even worse. You know, Now he's like, well – now, Hippolyta, you've tricked me and your daughter's tricked me and I, I want to go after both of you. Is it, you know, the, the best thought out, most logical thing? No, it's not. Um, is Hippolyta maybe not as intelligent as she could be? Yes. Is she smarter than the gods? Apparently so. Uh, but it's still, it makes sense to me. If, if these are the kind of stories that you want to tell that are mixed in with Greek mythology and, and all of that, it makes complete sense. So I actually enjoyed this a lot more than I thought I would considering the fact that I don't really care for these type of Wonder Woman stories, specifically why I liked it so much is how it went back and added context to so much of what Michael W. Conrad and Becky Cloonan have written before. This gives greater importance, greater gravitas to the myth realm jumping uh, first arc of their Wonder Woman series. It gives more meaning and more context for the trial of the Amazons. So I do appreciate that it, it's it's tying something together. They are trying to build something now. Whether or not it's something that that you want to read, that's to your personal taste. You know, that's another question altogether. But they are building something. It is something that's big and uh, you know wide in scope. So it, it, very interesting. Because again, do I feel like the stories for me? No, because these are not the type of Wonder Woman stories I want to read. Because I again could not care less. Don't want to read about Greek gods. No matter what iteration, whether it's Marvel's Greek gods with Hercules, whether it's 
you know, the, the westernized translations in my English classes and philosophy classes, or whether it's the DC versions, I don't want to read about any Greek gods ever. I could not possibly care less about them. I don't find them interesting in the slightest bit. I'm, I'm glad you like it, but I just want to add that uh, I, I read you know, uh, for example, the, th the three major arcs of Jason Aaron's Thor run. And there was a lot of villains and crazy characters, but I never thought that any of them were buffoons and just plain stupid. And that's, But they're not great gods. Well, on the, what, are you kidding? They're all, it's riddled with gods, Thor. Thor's riddled with gods. I There's said they're not, Greek, they're not Greek. They're not Greek gods. We got Zeus. They're not Greek. They're well, not we got, Greek well, gods. You're what, talking about what, Norse. If you're talking Thor, well, you're talking Norse gods. Well, we had Norse gods here and there around too. Uh, well, look, I don't know if it's an excuse to say, well, these are Greek gods, so it's okay to, to write them as if they're buffoons. I, just, I don't know. I mean, all I'm I, saying, all I'm saying is this. I don't have any context for Norse gods. And I don't, guess what? I don't read Thor either. I don't have any context personally. I don't have any uh, bias against North mythology because I wasn't forced to study it. But I also don't read Thor for exactly the same reason. I don't want to read about Norse gods either. I've never read, I've never read like the Simonson run or any of that. I've I'm, read I'm glad that you enjoyed Thor this it, it, because I don't, I don't want people to have my kind of reaction to this, but I, I really viscerally, this, this is, this undoes so much of 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 the past of Wonder Woman's. I mean, if George Perez, Again, I have no the first twenty four issues. I mean, treated I the no gods context. with far more respect than what I'm reading here, and it's just, I, 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 it just breaks my heart to see what's happened with this, and the fact that this is Olympus rebirth. This is this is what Olympus has become. I mean, this is really really disappointing to me in terms of the quality and integrity of the stories. Uh, I mean, what is, what are I they think, trying to I say? I think the quality of I think the look. You can disagree with their take on the gods. That's fine. But I think to say that it's not a quality story, it might not be to your taste, but it's still well paced. It's still. I mean, well, here's the other here's the other thing that's interesting, right? Like you don't it's like well the story. It is well paced. It is well paced. I guarantee yeah. that. And I think and I think it's relatively well scripted as well. I know you thought the dialogue was kind of hokey. I thought it worked. This is how I expected the, these gods to talk and act. But here's the thing: you liked the art. You didn't like the story. You liked the art. Well, I like the trying story. Trying to find something to you know. I mean, okay. uh, the but but what this is what's interesting. I liked the story. I didn't care for the art. And that's not to say the art is not technically good art. But it's very simple art. Like there's no detail in any of the art. Like I specifically really noticed it. I mean, it was, it, it's kind of started out and it was kind of okay for me. But then I specifically noticed it when you have the big splash page, the one that you were talking about where Hippolyta comes back and she's talking to the gods and getting them all riled up from the fact that she's, um, she's rescued chaos. Yeah. She doesn't even have a single line on any of her lips, you know, like, you know how we all have the little lines from the skin, our lips, the vertical lines, not a single one, not a single line. Uh, so I, I just, again, I, I noticed things like that. This is, seems like very simplistic type art. It, it tells the story. But it's not really my cup of tea when it comes to art. So, and the the irony is, I think the art reinforced my dislike of the story because it it, it this is such a simplified version of the Greek gods in in their engaging in the tropes of the of the misogyny of Zeus and everything else. And it's I'll grant you that it's absolutely true to the, to the classic classic 
characterizations of, of the Greek gods uh, in, in, in that respect. Uh, however, it's, it's the frustrating thing about the DC's approach in general to the Greek gods, Jace, that's always bothered me is they've, they've, they've always gone, they've developed all the characters of the DC universe. But one of the things that they've always done a terrible job with is creating consistency on their approach to the Greek gods. They never seem to develop. They always seem to take two steps forward and three steps back. And this is, in my you know opinion, one step opinion, another yeah. example of that. And and my response to that was would be I don't care because I don't want to read about them anyway. <laughs> I get that you I get and I get that you care and if 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 I was in your shoes I would probably be really frustrated too. But again I I could not possibly care care less. Yeah. I'm willing to accept this story on its own merits, and I'll just I'll leave you with this one last thought, and then we'll move on. Um, I would certainly say that the Batgirl, but the Barbara Gordon Batgirl. The Stephanie Brown Batgirl and the Cassandra Kane Batgirl that we're getting in Batgirls from this same writing duo is a simplified version. And you're, you seem more able to accept that, um, that you're not the target audience and we're getting a simplified version of your favorite DC character of all time, Cassandra Kane. Um, and it's okay. And you don't quite get as riled up as you do on this. So, but I get, I get where you're coming from. And if I cared about Greek gods and, you know, Wonder Woman was one of my favorite characters and that's clearly part of her origin, it would probably bug the shit out of me too. So, uh, all right, let's move on. Uh, Harley Quinn in space continues with issue number 24. Uh, although she makes it back to, (laughs) she makes it back to earth in this issue, uh, written by Stephanie Phillips, Simone Bionfantino is the artist colors are by Ramulo Fajardo Jr. Uh, and World Design does the letters. Uh, a bit of a transition issue. We get a lot of characterization for Luke Fox um, in, in terms of him always having wanted to be uh, a hero. And he even shows up in this sort of Fox-like armor um, saying – it's 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 kind of weird that the characterization we get for Luke Fox is, is it like – he doesn't feel worthy to wear the bat symbol. Does he not want to be um, beholden to Batman? Uh, but he's he's always wanted to make a difference. There's even allusions to his childhood here when he was, you know, imaginary playing uh, as a kid. Uh, he always wanted to go up against threats that were um, threatening the world so that he could save the world. Um, but this does feel like a bit of a, a setup issue because once – the surviving members of task force XX return, they all get some uh, beefed up versions of their particular weapons. Uh, and then they're going to go up against the element X alien. Um, but other than the characterization for Luke Fox and other than moving uh, the characters from point A to point B, we don't really get that much more in this, uh, in this issue. So I'm enjoying it, but I don't really have, much more to say um, about it than that because I didn't feel like a whole lot happened in this issue. Um, And I don't fault uh, Stephanie Phillips for that at all because Harley Quinn in my mind isn't, or at least this story isn't a Harley Quinn story. I mean, she's writing, she's been forced to write it weekly, you know, DC editorial, whatever decided, Hey, we're, this is going to come out every week. Uh, that's a lot of Harley content for for one month, um, but we know that the story is going to be concluded in the Harley Quinn annual 
coming up next week. So um, I thought the art was, was really solid. Uh, I do wish that the colors had been uh, a little brighter from Fajardo Jr., uh, even though it does the majority of the story does take place. But uh, I did think that the line work from uh, Simone Buonfantino was uh, was really good. So uh, what did you think of this, Rock? Uh, you know, the one misstep here is that I wish they wouldn't have called this Task Force XX. I, I actually like the Falk of Chase Fox developing his own team and maybe and having the wherewithal to do that. And he even alludes here at one point, Harley Quinn even says to him, you know, do you have a new name? If you're not Batwing anymore, who are you? And he says, well, that's a work in progress too. So it might be that we're this Luke Fox, he's not Batwing anymore. Okay. Well, who is he? So it, uh, I wonder if Stephanie Phillips, if, if, you know, if, if she started something here is Jace is, is pardon me, is Luke Fox on his way to becoming a new character with a new, i.e., a new name. I like the Fox with Jace with Luke Fox having his own team, and I just wish they would have distanced themselves because this is this isn't really a, a, a Suicide Squad tale, and yet it's kind of written like that. And they even call it Task Force XX, and I think they're maybe they did that just to maybe a, to get more readers. Maybe I don't know, but I kind of uh, I like Luke Fox sort of stepping out on his own, and I'm surprised he he wouldn't want to. Why he, why he would call it that? Why wouldn't he want to make make it his own? But I guess Luke Fox, as you said here, this issue is Luke Fox. We get a lot more revelations here. I kind of like his costume here. He he's sort of uh, he's trying to find a new identity here, and probably with his uh, older brother Jace uh, becoming you know the new Batman, and and he was Batwing. I'd probably that's you know considering himself, he probably doesn't want to think of himself as Batwing. It's kind of a demotion, and so. Um, uh, that, that's interesting here. Now, as far as the story proper, uh, it's not – nothing really is really standing out here. I don't really know what's going to become of this Element X. I think it's interesting on the surface. This Element X is from the from the Dark Universe. There's some of this Element X on the moon. No one on Earth. Uh, all the Teen Titans are embroiled with Dark Crisis. The Justice League is dead, so they got to do this. And yet for some reason, I'm I'm really not getting the sense that anything is at stake here. I mean, so what if they fail? What are the consequences? I, I never, I never, I'm not really feeling the gravitas of the moment here. There's character work here, but plot-wise, I'm not really feeling that there's a lot at stake. But, but having said that, you know, the art. Um, I'm trying to. Uh, you you mentioned who the artist is. The art by uh, Simone Buon Fantini. Buon Fantini. There's something about it I like, and I don't. Uh, I lack the language that you possess to 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 adequately describe it, but it feels like it has sort of a little bit of an animated feel to it. That the characters themselves sort of they're very bright, and the backgrounds are very sort of a little bit more subdued and different. I I, I like the way it looks. It's it's a, it's got a slightly different look uh, into in, the pages than I find in most comic books, and so I'm I'm a little bit intrigued on that. Again, I lack the language to adequately describe it, but. I I am enjoying the look here. It's it's a very divergent uh, shift away from the from the style of Rosma that we got so accustomed to for most of Harley's run. But uh, I don't I don't mind it. It's not again. It's nothing really that's is going to stand out. But I suspect I suspect that few fans of Luke Fox are going to look back on this run and point to this run as pivotal as the pivotal moment of change for Luke Fox. And so this might end up being a future key issue alert for key issue alerts for for the transformation of Luke Fox into a new kind of hero. So it's going to be interesting to see how the, how Luke Fox ends up at the end of this uh, Harley Quinn uh, story arc. 
Yeah, so interesting that it would take place in a Harley Quinn book. Exactly. <laughs> uh, all right, let's move on. We have Robin number 17, final issue, written by Joshua Williamson. Roger Cruz does the pencils, Norm Ratman on inks, Luis Guerrero on colors, and Troy Petrie on letters. Uh, what would you think of this? I, I enjoyed this. Uh, a lot of this is not uh, – I, I think because of uh, numerous advertisements and spoilers and what have you – uh, I, I think that the ending of this, we knew, uh, I knew what the ending of this would likely be. And surprise, surprise, this ends with, with Robin sort of uh, in the, in the, at the entrance of the cave that we know the demon Nezha is imprisoned in, that he was imprisoned in at the end of World's Finest issue six, where Superman, Batman, and, and Dick Grayson and Supergirl trapped the demon Nezha in the mountain. And it was revealed that that was on Lazarus Island. And ultimately, this issue ends with this. This is a really good issue. It ends with uh, them, you know, Damien making it back to the island with uh, with uh, 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 Connor Hawk and with Flatline, and they're they're confronting Lord Death. Lord Death is there delivering uh, Damien's heart to Mother Soul, and Mother Soul has this deal with the demon Nezha, who's been secretly talking to her for for many years, apparently. And of course, we now realize that all this time, that Mark Wade's great world's finest story from the very beginning was all tied into this, all leading to de the demon Nezha, you know, ultimately talking to Mother Soul and ultimately leading to what we know will become Robin versus Batman, because we know that at the end of this, while Robin is in front of the cave where the demon Nezha is imprisoned, we know ultimately he will be uh controlled by the demon Nezha and that will have some play into the Robin V Batman series that's coming out. So there's a, a the setup is all here. Uh, but you know, don't be fooled uh, for those listening here. I can assure you there's some great character work here. There's great moments between mother's soul and Lord death, poor Lord death. He thought he was going to get lucky with mother's soul because she gave him a great big sexy kiss at the end of last issue, but it's not to be, he was really hoping that he would, yeah, Lord death is addicted to, to Lazarus resin that keeps him alive and keeps him immortal. But he was also hoping to have a, uh, a wife out of it, Mother Soul, but Mother Soul betrays him. And meanwhile, we get some great moments uh, uh, where uh, with Damien, uh, Connor Hawk, Flatline, and all the other uh, sort of like the orphans that find their way to Lazarus Island. They have some really good character moments here. Great action, uh, great dialogue. The Lord Death goes a little bit crazy. He's so depressed and he attacks Damien and Flatline and there's a great scene where Damien literally rips the heart out of Lord Death, which is a move that he moved, that he learned from Flatline herself when Flatline ripped the heart out of Damien at the, at the in issue two or at the end of issue one of this series. So everything comes full circle. I find it interesting. Damien has his heart ripped out at the end of issue one. And here at, uh, we are in the final issue, Damien ripping the heart out of Lord Death. So there's sort of an interesting symbiosis there. And I think it works quite well. I like the fact that you know, it's got a happy ending here. You know, Flatline is, she, uh, you can tell Flatline and Damien, they get along. They're boyfriend and girlfriend. They, Flatline is even flattered that Damien uh, calls her his, his girlfriend. And, and Damien himself is not that embarrassed about it, which was nice to see. Damien has changed as a person over these 17 issues. And I never thought I'd see it. And so I got to give full props to Joshua Williamson. It was this series that made me a believer. I wasn't a fan of Joshua Williamson. I didn't like his flash run. I'm a fan of Joshua Williamson now because of 
uh, because of Robin and because I am enjoying his dark crisis and he's earned my respect through uh, what he's done and how he's led the DC universe here. Joshua Williamson, I think he's taken it on the chin. He's, uh, he's doing a lot for the DC universe. He's done a lot of the work himself. Uh, the, if there is anything resembling what we can call continuity in the DC universe, it's because of Joshua Williamson. And I want to give him props for that. And in particular, I want to give him props for Robin because this series started off. I never liked Damien. I wasn't a fan of Damien. I find myself a Damien Wayne fan again. And that's thanks to Joshua Williamson. So what do you think? Oh, you're on mute. Sorry, uh, Jace. Uh, I wouldn't go so far as to call myself a Damian Wayne fan, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, whenever I first discovered Damian, he was so annoying. Didn't like him. He got a little better. Then he got worse again. Now he's better. Um, so yeah, I, I, I'm neutral on him, uh, which is as, as much as I've ever liked the character. Uh, I will. So that being said, I'm sorry to see this series ending because Joshua Wimson has matured Damian a lot over these 17 issues. And I've really enjoyed it. The other thing that I'll say about the series, whether it was uh, the Gleb Melnikoff art in the beginning or the Roger Cruz art, uh, as we kind of got toward the end of the series, the art has been fantastic throughout. Uh, It's a little bit of a stylized um, art style with either one of them. Their art style is very similar. Um, And it just suits the, uh, aesthetic and the tone of the story that Williamson was telling really, really well. Also, it kind of suits the eclectic uh, band of characters that we had that were competing in the Lazarus tournament. So uh, kudos to the art. It's been fantastic throughout both line work and color work. So I, I'm sad to see this go because I, I have appreciated the maturation and evolution of Damien as a character under the guise of, under the helm of Joshua Williamson. And I, I wanted to see that continue. Um, so whether or not it continues in Batman versus Robin and, and then we get another or Robin versus Batman, I think Robin's name actually comes first. Um, either way, uh, I, I don't, I can't tell you off the top of my head who the artist is for that. I hope it's either Gleb Melnikoff or Roger Cruz. And I hope that we get, uh, if we do get another, Damian Wayne Robin series coming after that, that Joshua Wimson has time to write it. I know he's super busy, um, but he's done a fantastic job. Maybe the best I've seen anybody write Damien since uh, Peter J. Tomasi and his kind of super sons run um, other people that have written Damien. It hasn't worked for me very well. So uh, yeah, sorry to see it come to an end. It was great to see Connor Hawk as well. Uh, he doesn't, he's a, Character that doesn't show up enough in my mind in the DCU. So, uh, all right. Up next, we have Task Force Z, written by Matthew Rosenberg, Eddie Barrows on pencils, Eber Ferrer on inks, Adriana Lucas on colors, Rob Lee on letters. In case anybody's not clear, the big bad of this series is Mr. Bloom. <laughs> uh, much like Damian Wayne, Mr. Bloom never in my mind was really a character that clicked for me. Never a character that I really felt um, was very threatening or formidable. Uh, you know, he's created at the end of the Scott Snyder run. And yeah, for whatever reason, I just never really thought he was that dangerous, that intelligent, that smart, that much of a threat. Under the pen of uh, Matthew Rosenberg here, that's clearly been blown out of the water. So I love 
the fact, especially if you go back and reread with the context of the knowledge that we have currently, if you go back and reread the series from the beginning, you can see how Bloom was manipulating things. Um, you can see how much further ahead he is, how many steps ahead he is than everybody else. So that's been fantastic. Also, the kind of heart on his sleeve, torturous aspect of Jason Todd, that characterization, Rosenberg has nailed as well. Uh, and then I, I do like his version of Harvey Dent, regardless of whether we know when he got cured or what have you. That's all worked out really, really well also. So fantastic job from Matthew Rosenberg. Now, when you add in all these other Bat villains, whether it be – I know Solomon Grundy's not a traditional Batman villain, but he did show up in the first couple of issues of uh, Tom King's Batman run, ad, as did Gotham and Gotham Girl. That's where they first showed up. They're in this as well. But we've also got Man Bat. We've also got KG Beast. We've also got Deadshot, who I know most people know him as a member of Suicide Squad, but traditionally Deadshot, when he first showed up prior – you know pre-Suicide Squad, he was a Batman villain. Maybe not to the level of showing up often enough to be considered you know, a classic rogue, but uh, he was a Batman villain. So it, it's as much as Rosenberg's been able to use Two-Face, you can't necessarily bring in Joker or Penguin or um, you know, Black Mask or, or every... You can't bring in all the, the Bat-Rogues villains, right? Have them all be dead and um, resurrected with Lazarus Resin, Bane's another. So I feel like Rosenberg probably went to uh, probably Marie Javins and said, uh, yeah, which Bat villains can I use? Because I want to use as many as possible to really show and really tie this in uh, to the Batman mythos in terms of Jason Todd leading this team of Batman rogues. So when you add that context in, to the great characterization that I already mentioned, you have the makings of a really fantastic story. The pacing has been frenetic throughout. It's been pedal to the metal, all out action with Jason Todd, barely keeping his head above water, trying to figure out what the hell's going on. Uh, and it, it, I won't say it got confusing, but it got complicated at times. Um, and now it's starting to all make sense. The fact that Bloom was so far ahead of everybody the entire time, it was all about him perfecting Lazarus resin and being the only one that has control of it uh, and using that to amass a huge fortune so that in his own words, he can retire to Borneo, I think is where he wants to go. Uh, just sit on a beach and drink Mai Tais, I suppose. So uh, it's been a wild ride and a whole lot of fun. And it shows Matthew Rosenberg's knowledge of the Batman corner of the DC universe really, really well, how much he cares about these characters, how great he is at pacing and dialogue and uh, scripting this really fun series. And that would be enough. If we had that, that would be enough and I'd be hooked, right? On top of that, we get Eddie Barrows, Eber Ferreira, and Adriana Lucas. The, you put those three together, that's a dream team of artists, whether they're working on this, whether they're working on the Future State Robin uh, two-issue series, whether they're doing Freedom Fighters uh, that Robert Venditti wrote a couple years ago. Dream artist team. These three work together so, so well. The art is fantastic. It's detailed. Um, it's uh, emotional when it needs to be. It's quiet when it needs to be. Uh, the color work just jumps off the page. Like this comic is so good. I can't believe more people aren't talking about it. I can't believe I don't hear more people talking about it. This is one of those books that despite the fact that I have, uh, you know, monthly copies of everything, 
and digital copies from my press previews, this will be one that I buy in a collected edition, hopefully a hardcover because it's that good. I want to be able to have it all together in one volume to be able to loan out or just, you know, take on a trip with me or just sit down and read on a Saturday afternoon. It is so goddamn good. So, uh, Rocky, what are your thoughts? Uh, I found this issue. I had to read this about three times and I'm still a little bit confused if I'm brutally honest. Uh, but having said that, I, I agree with you that, the uh, the high points here are are Bloom. And the, Bloom has actually become an interesting character. Bloom is probably the worst created character of Scott Snyder. I'd never liked Bloom, and I know, and I'm not alone in saying that. But I'm I actually really enjoy Bloom as a villain now be, because of uh, Matthew Rosenberg, and that's high compliments to him. I, I love Red Hood. Uh, I agree with you, Matthew Rosenberg. Even though to be blunt here. Look, I've been confused before. That's on me, okay? I Because I actually trust that I just got to go back and reread it. I read a lot of comics. And the reality is, is that even when I'm confused, I'm, I'm, the, the dialogue of the characters fits the character. Matthew, you're right. Matthew Rosenberg knows these characters. And it, it feels that way. And there's humor. So even as I'm reading this and I'm a little confused, I'm still laughing at the dialogue. So that's a high compliment. So even if I'm, even if do my, do my own, Due to my own shortcomings, I I have to I have to understand things better. It's nice that I can enjoy the humor and the and the dialogue as uh, as uh, maybe I'm I'm helping myself not feel a little bit lost. I also I also say I I also love I'm glad that Gotham's back. I always love Gotham Girl. I love that Gotham Girl showed up because I I thought to myself it's not going to make sense if Gotham Girl doesn't show up. Gotham Girl shows up here. It's awesome, and you bloody well expect her to because she's so close to her brother Gotham, and she shows up and of course incapacitates Jason Todd. Uh, naturally, she's going to take her brother's side, and it's really good to see that Gotham is likely going to probably end up being fully resurrected because he's he ends up just being really like a walking corpse here. But we know here at the end of this issue that Bloom has has basically taken over like an old bat batman a bat, bat mecha suit of some kind and he's got he's made for himself Lazarus resin i suspect that the Lazarus resin at the end that blue all the Lazarus resin that Bloom has created will likely resurrect resurrect Astrid Arkham fully along with Gotham fully and the other villains so it's going to sort of reset the status quo for all these villains that have died over the last few years in DC comics continuity so you know that's the massive reset and you know we expect that in comics uh, but we don't always get a reset that that takes place in such a well-crafted story. And that's what this was. And I agree with you. This is something where there's no question that this will read. This will be an enjoyable read when it's all 12 issues in one. Hopefully, it's a nice hardcover. I hope it comes out in hardcover. I agree with you. It's definitely one uh, a must-buy for a hardcover. Along, if you're going to buy a soft cover, buy uh, buy the uh, the Grifter storyline uh, that that Matthew Rosenberg did in Bat- Bam- Batman: Urban Legends. That was quite good as well. So yeah, I agree with you. This is this is a story worth worth picking up. It's it's going to require your time. There's a it's a lot of times there's a lot of dialogue and it's exposition heavy at time. But take your time and read it. It's a guilty pleasure. Yeah, the other part about it is you know I say it got complicated. The funny thing is a lot of those complications were sort of red herrings and it turns out it's a lot simpler than, you know, you think. And, and that's sort of what comes out of this issue that yeah. really at the end of the day, this was all about bloom manipulating people to, to be distracted fighting amongst themselves. Uh, whether it's the, was powers international or Amanda Waller or, um, or two face bloom kept them all busy 
fighting each other for control of Lazarus resin so they could all be distracted so he could perfect Lazarus resin and be in control of it. At, at the end of the day, that's the story. It's, it actually is pretty simple. Um, yeah. But yeah, there's a lot of kind of uh, red herrings and uh, different storylines that, uh, that Matthew Rosenberg hints at that it turns out are just smoke and mirrors. So uh, again, very, very well done. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Justice League versus the Legion of Superheroes. We're up to issue number five, penultimate issue from writer Brian Michael Bendis. Uh, the art is by Scott Godlewski, colors by Ryan Cody, letters by Dave Sharp. And since you're such a huge Bendis fan, I'm going to let you go first. What do you think? <laughs> yeah. uh, well, I uh, – again, I not much happens here. Not much happens here. Uh, but if you've been with this series so far, I guess you're going to probably – pick up this issue this this issue starts off like a lot of the like every single issue of bendis's legion of superheroes run with it there's always a member of the legion of superheroes talking uh breaking the fourth wall talking to the reader sort of giving a synopsis of what's happened which actually is a habit that i wish more writers would have because often probably because i read so many comics it's and so do you i know that but it's nice to sometimes get a little bit of a synopsis i have to admit i can't remember how many months i feels like it's been months since i read issue four so it was nice to get a little bit of a synopsis at the beginning and um uh but you know it's very easy to catch up here because since issue one just not a lot has happened we basically have this 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 black cloud that's appeared in the 21st century and has plucked up the the justice league and flash them into the future and along with the gold lantern and they all end up ultimately in the 31st century after time jumping and a lot of dialogue, a lot of conversation. And this entire issue literally just involves Batman along with the rest of the justice league and the Legion of superheroes having a glorified conversation with gold lantern, uh, who is, uh, we, we know is, is in fact blind and they want him to take off his ring because uh, Epoch in the Justice League, I think it was the Justice League annual number three or a couple months ago that we reviewed. Uh, there, there's Epoch warned about a gold lantern, and so they're 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 worried that gold lantern has some connection with this black cloud that's sort of sort of appeared in in, in both in both the 31st century and the 21st century, and ultimately it, it involves. There's actually a page here that has literally. You want to talk about talking heads? I mean, we joke about Bendis having talk, talking heads. Well, artist Scott uh, Godlewski here, there's like one, two, three, and six, eight. Uh, there's like tw- a 24 panel grid over a double page spread, 24 panels, all talking heads. Uh, one long glorified conversation, the conclusion of which uh, they, they don't establish anything uh, other than the fact that they're because they were all in different time periods over the previous uh, four issues, they just they they summarize what they've confronted in different time periods, and what they've confronted is uh, they've confronted dinosaurs, uh, Leviathan, Talia Gall, Epoch, Alan Scott, the uh, Jonah Hex, and uh, that's kind of it. And they've they come to the determination based upon those clues that somehow. Somebody is attacking the age of heroes. A villain wants to eliminate the age of heroes. And in the midst of all this, a triplicate girl merges all three aspects of herself together. In the very first issue, we had triplicate girl, uh, triplicate girl uh, end up in the 21st century. And then before she was sent back to the 31st century, this time phenomenon occurred, this black cloud, and it, 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 it ripped her apart. And, and when it ripped her into three parts, 
her one of her aspects aged up considerably while the other parts didn't and there's a fear that if she merges back together she will her ages will be the average of all three and so it might potentially injure her and anyway she merged back and everything was fine no consequence there um there's not uh rose and batman have a conversation they just determined that somebody might be out to destroy the age of heroes and at the end uh literally just vandal savage shows up and uh says yeah and confirms yeah he's out to destroy the age of heroes and um it wasn't much of a mystery we there was no clues that it was Vandal Savage. I'm not sure why we're supposed to care. It's completely unrelated to the Great Darkness. It's nothing related to Dark Crisis that we're aware of. Uh, there's he's done nothing. Uh, Vandal Savage out of the blue. It, it could have been you know it might as it might as well been a random nobody villain that showed up. It but it happened to be Vandal Savage. So what? Uh, we're at issue five now and one issue left and Vandal Savage will spend the, probably the sixth and final issue talking for 12 pages, telling the heroes what happened behind the scene. So like, I, I hate to be so pe- pessimistic, but this is just a really, really, really boring series. And uh, I would have loved to have seen some more action here. There was no fights. There was no nothing. There was no action. Uh, nothing really worth talking about. We learned almost nothing about Green Lantern other than that he's blind. So congratulations. In the future, the Green Lantern cord consists of one gold lantern who's blind. Okay, thanks, Bendis. Um, anyways, I, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll keep being cynical, but that's it in a nutshell. So I got, I don't think I said anything really bad about it. It's just not really all that exciting. But uh, what do you think? Uh, yeah, I gotta say it hasn't, it hasn't been that exciting. I haven't really been enjoying it, but this is the best issue for me. This was the best issue so far. <laughs> You're right in that it wasn't, um, or I should say the most interesting issue so far. We did find out who's behind it. I, I do find Vandal Savage to be an interesting villain a lot of times. Uh, you're right in that it wasn't a mystery because we didn't get any clues. I mean, you could have randomly guessed it was Vandal Savage, but you also could have, you know, thrown a dart at a dartboard. Yeah. Uh, but he does, he, you know, Vandal Savage is a villain that's often, you know, related to time travel stories. So it does make sense in that aspect. Also, I did enjoy the uh, interaction between the Legion of Superheroes and the Justice League as they're trying to compare notes to figure it out. It made a lot of sense. But then at the end of the day, um, Triplicate Girl's kind of a MacGuffin in that it doesn't matter what anybody else remembers in terms of, oh, dinosaurs come back. Oh, we saw this, you know, we saw dinosaurs here and we saw this thing over here and we saw that thing over there. It didn't really matter. All you needed was for Triplicate Girl to combine and then you get the answer. So I, I enjoyed it, but at the end of the day, it ends up being Triplicate Girl recombining that really gives the answer. Um, but I, I, I did enjoy the art by Scott Godlewski. I've talked before about the colors and how I wish they weren't u- using a bit of a muted palette. But I, spe- I, I did uh, specifically like at the end when Vandal Savage does show up, how everything's white behind him, um, kind of as a metaphor for wiping everything out, uh, wiping the Age of Heroes out. And I do like that he, he, like you said, he'll probably spend the next issue 12 pages just talking. Um, but it is kind of meta because he does say, he's like, yeah, I could have done this without you leaguers or legionnaires even knowing that I did it. This was a gift to me. That's 100% Vandal Savage's character. Like, I wanted you to know that it was me, you know? So if that's not a Roger Rabbit villain, I don't know what is. And uh, Vandal Savage has always come across as someone of a, a, a Roger Rabbit. And I, by that, I mean a very cartoony, uh, mustache-twirling villain who uh, is going to make sure that 
the heroes know he's the one pulling the strings. So, yeah, yeah is this going to be a memorable series? At the end of the day, probably not. Um, but I, I did find this issue entertaining. It, it, my favorite of the series so far, which I know that's not saying a lot because it has been sort of slow, uh, not helped by the delays, as Rocky alluded to. So, uh, all right, let's move on. Uh, Swamp Thing, number 16, is up next. Ram V is the writer. Mike Perkins is the artist. Mike Spicer on colors. I did a bit of car on letters. I'll talk about the art first. It's been fantastic throughout. Uh, there's no change in that here. It's uh, it's just gorgeous. Um, there's even a, a Brian Boland cover, uh, which is all you know, really great as well. Um, at the end of the day, I just don't know that this series. I don't know. I, I don't know. I struggled. I struggled with these, this series. And for a lot of the same reasons that I was talking about with the detective comics, um, there's big ideas here from Ram V in terms of nature and technological advancement and uh, living in harmony uh, as we as a civilization become more, more advanced and the, the world gets smaller. Um, you know, what does it mean to, to, have advancement? How do you have technology live in concert with nature? Again, really, really big ideas. Um, but are, are, are these things that I want to spend pondering when I read a comic? Um, and I, I feel a little bit hypocritical saying that because I always talk about the, this idea that the, my favorite comics are the ones that make you think. Um, but again, like I, I like to think about things that maybe I might have a possibility of affecting or, uh, that I can say, okay, in my life, I can do this, uh, to help further that these ideas are so big and so out there, like, you know, questions of, of the nature of the universe that I have no, I have no no dream of affecting, right. No dream of that. My life could, could make a difference in, in any of that. So, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. Um, when you think about it from that, from that level. And other than the fact that, that one of these ideas is nature, there's not really any reason that this could be, or that it needed to be a swamp thing story as opposed to, you know, a green lantern story or a Superman story, or just some random Joe Schmo hero story. Does it work better because it's a swamp thing story? I mean, slightly a little bit more, um, but not, not so much that you couldn't tell the story with another hero. So I, I, I kind of question like, it, is this a story that Ram V's always wanted to tell because he wanted to write a Swamp Thing story? Or is this just a story he wanted to tell? And he got a chance to write a Swamp Thing story and said, Oh, I got a story that'll fit that. You know what I mean? Like I, I, I like Ram V as a writer. I'd rather would have seen him do something a little more intimate with Swamp Thing, especially be, given the fact we have a new Swamp Thing. Because although we did get some characterization for Levi Kamei in the beginning and a little bit of history, the story got so big so quick in scope that I still feel like I don't really know who Levi is. You know what I mean? Not the way that I know who – and I'm – again, I'm not a Swamp Thing guy at all. I haven't read a lot of Swamp Thing, but I, I feel like I have a much better understanding of who Alec Holland is and what makes him tick and the way he would react in any given situation more than I do Levi. Uh, and I've read more – consecutive issues of Levi Kamei than I've ever read of, of Alec Holland. So I don't know, maybe, maybe somebody else has a, a different take on it, but for me, 
this just kind of it, it missed the mark. Was it an interesting story? Yes. Did it, you know, change my opinion of, of Swamp Thing? Did it feel like, oh, this is a definitive Swamp Thing story? Every Swamp Thing fan is going to need to read this. No, not not at all, <laughs> not at all. And I would be curious to know if you're a longtime Swamp Thing fan, uh, how this landed for you, because again, it just doesn't feel. It almost feels like the character of Swamp Thing is a little bit of an afterthought. Again, other than that tenuous fact that you know Swamp Thing is the avatar of nature, um, and nature is one of the three aspects here. You know, you have nature, you have technology, you have death, basically. Um, other than that, like, why did it need to be Swamp Thing? So, I don't know. Did you feel differently, Rocky? Uh, no, I actually agree with you. And I've been a huge proponent of this series, but I got to admit, I feel that this ended on a whimper. And I've been, I've really been enjoying the exposition and, and the themes and the idea of the, the conflict between good ideas and bad ideas. And it's, it's definitely been esoteric. It's been thematic. It's, it's, it's delved into the philosophical and the spiritual at times, no question. And, but I found myself, ironically enough, agreeing with the villain of the piece who actually says, and I'm quoting him word for word, he interrupts Swamp Thing in the middle of his soliloquy in his speech. He says, enough, enough of your ridiculous sermon. I actually yeah. agreed with him. He goes, it is my drive and ambition that has brought them this far. It's my purpose that they adhere to a parliament that has been crafted by its avatar. And and you know, he's frustrated. It, even the villain of this piece wants, he wants to accomplish something, to do something. Uh, but the overriding theme of this if this final issue is that it's basically Levi, you know, uh, essentially acknowledging that this Trinity, this Trinity who is the Parliament of Gears, she's this nuclear creature. And basically, she still has to choose for herself what she wants to be. She's got to choose the eternal choice, they say, to be better or worse. The choice is yours. So the jury is still out on this trinity. Is this trinity going to be a villain? Is this trinity going to be bad? Everything comes down to a choice. And in fact, the central message of Levi at the end of this series, as Levi is uh, is talking with... Uh, He's talking with uh, the woman, uh, with Jennifer, who is the love of his life now, because they started off as just friends and became lovers throughout this series, and they've they've admitted their love for each other. And basically, at the end, yeah, Levi says, I want to be able to look at myself and not see a monster there. That is all anyone can hope for. And, and yeah, I guess but you can... Have, not, yeah, not to interrupt, but, but that's... Uh, it kind of goes back to what I say. I, we still don't know who Levi is, because you're right. Exactly. At the end of the day... Uh, you know, we don't get an answer. It was all these big questions. And at the end of the day, and, and Trinity, in a way, is sort of our point of view character, you know, because she's confronted with all these ideas and, hey, what do you have? To, and, oh, well, you know, I guess we still have to decide for ourselves. Like, what? Like, you didn't even hint one way or the other. Like, well, I don't even know which way Levi would lean. I mean, obviously, Levi's not going to side with the villain, but yeah, I just expected something a little more, more of a concrete answer or, or at least a leaning. And I feel like we didn't get that. Yeah, and I and I I do think that in fairness, maybe that was sort of the point of what Ramby is trying yeah. to say that you know it's sometimes it's about perspective, not about right or wrong, and it's it's about ideas, not necessarily the rightness or wrongness of the idea, but about the 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 choice of the idea itself and what to do with it, and you know again, I guess it's typical swamping and that it makes you think and different readers can take what they want from the narrative. And so in that respect, I, th I, th I think it works overall. I still got to say, I got far more enjoyment out of the series overall. This is actually ironically enough. This is one of the more, I find, I found the art here to be particularly beautiful by Mike Perkins. I love this issue. Uh, although I will say though, that it sort of end 
it ended a little bit on a whimper, but I still thoroughly enjoyed this series, and I will be picking it up. I hope it, they collect it as a hardcover because I think I'm, this might be another candidate for a hardcover because just because how it makes me think. Because as I've always said about myself, I'm a sucker for a good metaphor, and this is this series is ripe with them. Yeah, that's true, and you're right about the art. Like the art in the series has been probably the most consistent, and best art in uh, anything DC's done in quite a while. So. And a shout out! Uh, thank you for mentioning Brian Boland. Uh, he's one of my favorite uh, cover artists and uh, interior artists. We don't see a lot of his interior art anymore, but yeah, I, I love that that variant cover by Brian Boland. Boom, man! It's, it looks yeah, beautiful. Fantastic. Uh, all right, I mentioned this at the top, the return of uh, Human Target. It's not the regular series, but we do get a Tales of the Human Target, which is sort of fleshing out the story a little bit more. Written by Tom King, we have art and colors by a few different artists. Raphael Albuquerque with Dave Stewart on colors. Kevin McGuire with Alex Sinclair on colors. Michael uh, or Mikhail Yanin with Arif Prianto on colors. And then Greg Smallwood, who does kind of the framing piece. And it's all lettered by Clayton Cowles. What do you think of this? I honestly, when I first started reading this, I didn't know what the hell was going on. It, it actually, I got to admit, <laughs> the story never, you know, it wasn't until about three quarters of the way through that it suddenly, oh, suddenly there was a revelation where, because I was thinking, what the hell's going on here? It felt like three kind of disconnected stories. And then all of a sudden, kudos to Tom King, the way he drew it all together. I'm almost embarrassed to say to admit that I never saw the ending coming. And in hindsight, it was maybe kind of obvious that the ending was going to be what it was. And it's one of those things is even though I know that you and I give uh, spoiler reviews here, I, I almost don't want to, I don't want to spoil the story for potential readers here. Uh, but it's, we, we got, we got seemingly different stories of uh, which believe it or not, all three of these stories all have to do with Christopher Chase but you don't realize Christopher Chase is a, is actually the human target is actually in these stories until the end of these various stories that Tom King sort of jumps back and forth to throughout the narrative uh, until you realize that the human target is in fact someone who impersonates people whose lives are in danger and the I I love narratively the way Tom King structured this full cre- full props to him Beautifully uh, rendered by uh, Kevin McGuire, Mikhail Jannon, Raphael Apikirky, Greg Smallwort. This is a fantastic combination of artists that works so well in this narrative. And we, we get stories of Guy Gardner, of, of Fire, of, um, of Booster Gold, uh, all having their own seemingly disconnected adventures where they, they end up failing to save somebody's life and trying to protect someone's life. Uh, ultimately to discover that the life that they're saving is actually Christopher Chase, who's undercover uh, because he's trying to figure out who's killing the person he's impersonating because that's what the human target does. It completely fooled me, the revelation at the end. Uh, I thought it was brilliantly done. And then to top it off at the end to find out that this is all a story that fire, that part of me, that Booster Gold is telling to Ice before she meets the human target. Because early on in the Human Target series, uh, Ice was given a heads up that Human Target would be would be talking to her, and this was the conversation that Ice had trying to get some information on Chris. Well, I think she had a I think she had a conversation with all three. I think she talked to Guy Gardner, Fire, and Booster Gold. Oh, fair enough. 
Thank you. And uh, I was a little bit confused by that. I wasn't exactly sure if it was all. Yeah, because if you if you look, yeah, if you look at that those last pages, you'll notice that the background color is different, right? Like one of the background and and one of the backgrounds is blue when she's talking to uh, Guy Gardner, right? And then when she's talking to Booster Gold, it's like a, a purplish color. And okay. then when she's talking to fire, it's the yellow, it's the yellow <laughs> color. So I think she's, t- yeah, three different conversations. Yeah. So she's prefer- prepared to talk to Christopher Chance the next well, day. I, I appreciate it even more when you point that out, to, uh, when you point that out, it makes perfect sense. And uh, all the more, all the, you know, it makes me want to compliment Greg Smallwood all the more and uh, Tom King for scripting it again. I mean, I, this is just, this is such a perfect segue into the next issue, human target number seven. This really works. And, uh, and it, it makes you realize that, you know, Ice, you know, Ice did her homework before meeting Christopher Chase and they're all telling him different things and they're almost giving a negative interpret. They're almost a negative impression of Christopher Chase for the most part. But so which underscores the fact that it's all the more interesting that ultimately Ice, I think, is falling in love. I, unless she's manipulating Christopher Chase, I think she's genuinely falling in love with uh uh, with uh, Christopher Chase, the human target, uh, in the first six issues, anyway. And it, uh, anyways, I'm I, I'm quite impressed with it. I, I really love this story, and I think people, if if you've been enjoying the human target sto- series, I very strongly advise people to pick this up because this is uh, this is one of those stories you'll want to reread because it's like, oh, once you get the revelation, that's what's going on. It's like, especially when uh, on the some of the people that human target is impersonating, especially the fire story. That was my personal favorite where she's trying to protect her photographer who's killed and she even buries him and she's burying Christopher chase. And you know, Christopher chase is frustrated because he's, he's playing the victim, but he wants these heroes that are trying to protect them to leave already so he can do his job, but, but they won't. And it's just so well done. And, uh, and again, another compliment to Tom King, man, that's two weeks in a row that I'm complimenting Tom King. What the hell? Yeah, I, I can't imagine anybody who's reading Human Target that doesn't pick this up. Um, so I do appreciate that. And well, you're right about the narrative structure. I was a little confused myself when I first started reading it. Um, so I, I wonder if it might not have worked better if you just told one story and then the other and the other. Uh, I think ultimately it does work and you will catch on. Um, and then, you know, like I said, you've got the three different backgrounds uh, on the last page to kind of clue you in that, hey, this is uh, Ice talking to three different people about Christopher Chance. So, um, yeah, it, it does work really, really well. And, and the other aspect of it that I, I love is, again, this is a, a story that's outside regular DC continuity in terms of the characterization for Guy Gardner. He's sort of dialed up to 11. He's even more of a, a jerk and a blowhard than he is in the regular series. Booster's even more, a little bit more of an airhead than uh, than he is uh, in in the regular DCU. Uh, I guess Fire's pretty much the same or as close to. Um, but I do I do appreciate that uh, that this characterization of these characters uh, in this story from Tom King are are you know dialed up to eleven just like they are in the regular Human Target series. So and getting a chance to see Mikhail Yanin and uh, Mikhail, uh, yeah, Mikhail Yanin and, and Kevin McGuire and Roberto Albuquerque's art here is, uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's a whole heck of a lot of fun. So 
definitely recommend this. And if you're not reading Human Target, then I don't know. You don't like DC Comics, basically, because it's it's yeah. such a good series. Uh, all right. So I haven't read the last book because uh, I've never read any of Fables, but I want to give Rocky a chance to talk about it. Fables number 154 is out this week as well from writer-creator Bill Willingham, penciled by Mark Buckingham, Steve Lea Aloha does the inks, Lee Luffridge on colors, and Todd Klein on letters. What are your thoughts? Uh, well, look, if, if you're uh, – this is one of those things. If uh, This is part four of uh, chapter four trouble it's uh, chapter four of 12 of the black forest and this is uh really this is the story of of the the children of snow white and and big b wolf the big bad wolf they they've been uh the big bad wolf told his children to go out and have a a big adventure uh in the black forest and uh and he snow white scolded her husband saying my god big b how could you be so foolish you told our children who are who are the most powerful children in all of existence because they embody the magic of Snow White and the Big Bad Wolf and yourself. And you told them, and they want to impress you. You told them to go and, and have a big adventure. Do you realize what the trouble that they could cause? I mean, and if, if you've ever read fables, you know that they can cause, you know, because, you know, these magically, supremely magical, powerful creatures, they literally have the multiverse at their disposal to go and have an adventure. And what happens here is this just continues the tale of their, their children going and continuing to have their adventures in very different places. One, uh, one ends up uh, being trapped in a house with a glorified crazy librarian. Uh, and uh, one ends up, uh, one, one ends up talking to a turtle and being manipulated by that. One's at, one ends up, uh, one ends up up on faraway lands, uh, uh, one ends up wielding a sword and being in an- another area of the multiverse. And I, I say multiverse; they don't use the term multiverse. It's just ma- different magical lands. Uh, our world is called the Monday world, where the ordinary people live, the non-magical world. And and fables ended in issue one fifty where it was revealed the, the world discovered that the Mondays, the world discovered that these fairy tale creatures exist. And prior to this series, we even had it. We even had an adventure where uh, Batman and Big B Wolf had a, had a, I think a six issue series written by Bill Willingham. And, and so that sort of was the clue, uh, sort of a cluing in that, that there's an overlap between the, the fables world and the mainstream DCU. And this sort of like connects to that to a certain extent. Uh, this issue was really a lot of, uh, I would say, more more buildup. Uh, I will say that this is not particularly new reader friendly. I've said that before. I wish it was because I Bill Willingham does such a good job with fables. But this is something where what I love that DC, why DC has approved this is that. Quite frankly, if you're going to start reading fables, you're going to start reading. You'll want to start issue from reading from issue one. I like the fact that you can just that that. You know, they're not spoon feeding readers on this because if you're going to, if you love fables and fairy tales and what have you, you're going to be, want, you'll want to read this from the first issue. Uh, and I like the fact that there's so much lore here. They're not, Willingham isn't trying to tell you the whole story about all these characters all over again. He's assumed that we readers have done our homework. So if you're new to fables, you won't want to jump in blind. Uh, I would suggest you start from the beginning with the trade paperbacks. You won't be disappointed. And for those of us longtime readers, this can, continues a great story with the children of Snow White and Big B Wolf. It's a lot of fun. 
Yeah, and again, not new to reader friendly, and man, to go back and read 150 issues of Fables. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I'll I'll continue to let you handle that uh, on your own. Uh, a few uh, collections that are out today. We have the I Am Batman Volume One hardcover collects issues zero through five of John Ridley's I Am Batman. Uh, we've got Justice League, the New 52 Omnibus Volume Two hardcover. So this guy has a ton of issues. It's uh, Jeff Johns' run of Justice League, issues 24 through 52. It's got the entire Forever Evil uh, miniseries, numbers 1 through 7. It has DC Universe Rebirth, number 1, uh, that issue that brought a tear to many DC uh, fans' eye. DC Sneak Peek Justice League, number 1, Justice League featuring Secret Society, 23.4, Justice League of America featuring Black Adam, 7.4, Justice League Dark Side War Special, number 1, Justice League Dark Side War Batman number one, Justice League Dark Side War Flash number one, Justice League Dark Side War Green Lantern number one, Justice League Dark Side War Lex Luthor number one, Justice League Dark Side War Shazam number one, and Justice League Dark Side War Superman number two. So, as I said, collects the second half of Jeff John's run, including obviously the Dark Side War and a couple of those villain specials. Uh, so, if you're so inclined, you can pick that up. There's also an Animal Man omnibus hardcover. That's coming out uh, as well. And that collects, uh, for the first time, Animal Man numbers 1 through 26 and uh, a tale from Secret Origins number 39, which is the origin of Animal Man. So uh, those are out this week in addition to the monthlies. Uh, if I had to pick a favorite book this week, it's kind of tough because that Human Target issue was really great. So was Task Force Z. But ultimately, because of the amazing one-liners, I'm going to give my book of the week to uh, Batman Fortress number four. What about you? You have a favorite rock? Uh, I yeah, I would have to go with um, you know uh, talking with you about it, and even you 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 helped me develop even a greater appreciation than I already have. I definitely I will be going with Human Target. Is my pick of the week. Uh, so yeah, it's, uh, it's good. Yeah. It was, uh, again, I'm, I think I'm batting about 50% this week in terms of my, my, my choices, but, uh, you know, uh, again, uh, I, I think, you know, DC is holding its own and, uh, hopefully, you know, it's going to be interesting to see, uh, we, well, you and I are preview to some of the things coming up for DC and I'm, I'm really hoping that some of the things coming up for DC are going to be resonating with readership over the next uh, month or so. Yeah, I agree 100%. Can't wait for more of Batman Fortress. Can't wait for the return of Human Target. Uh, like I said, really tough call. I'm glad you picked Human Target because, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's it's definitely deserving. So that's going to do it for this episode, everybody. Don't forget, head over to YouTube, subscribe to Rocky's channel, comic, space, boom, exclamation point. Ring the notification bell, leave comments. We certainly asked you <laughs> some questions. You can help fill in some blanks for us. Um, subscribe to the channel so you don't miss any content. Uh, conversely, if you check us out on YouTube all the time and you want to uh, take part or uh, listen to the rest of the Comic Source content, just go to wherever you get your podcast and subscribe to the Comic Source. Do a quick search. We'll show up. We appreciate the support and you guys listening as always and watching. And we'll talk to you next time. See you later. You can find the Comic Source podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. 
Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.